today is January 1st, 2018, and I want to welcome you to this week's Lloyd A. Thompson and the Mad Mike Sports Talk Show. I want to wish you guys, the listeners, a happy new year. I wish you guys nothing but the best with health, prosperity, and blessings as we come into this new year. And remember, listeners, the show airs every Monday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and of course, at LloydAThompson.com. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you won't miss a damn thing. And also, guys, if you have any questions that you'd like to be aired on the show, you can shoot them through email to Lloyd at partmyfresh.com or you can send them directly through the website me and Matt Michael also on social media on Twitter at Lloyd A. Thompson one word and on Instagram at Lloyd A. Thompson one word so be sure to hit that subscribe button guys we have a very special show for you today this is the best of 2017 so we're going to go over some interviews or replay some interviews of some of our guests that we've had on the show you know my little brother Langston Galloway our good friend Joe Rivera from the Sporting News and some of my blow-ups and some of the disagreements that me and Mad Mike have had over the previous 2017 so guys we're one year through I want to thank you guys for the support let's keep this thing going and as always let's buckle up Get back and relax and start spreading the news. Hey, yo, let's get this special show going on, baby. Okay, listen, 2017 was a nice year. So let's check out the best of 2017. Lloyd A. Thompson, the Mad Mike Show. Let's go. Welcome to the very best of 2017 with the Lloyd A. Thompson and Mad Mike Sports Talk Show. Ironically, guys, we're not going to find out where the Mad Mike is and where he's calling from today because Mad Mike was lucky enough to have a vacation day off, so he's enjoying his time with his family and his friends and his loved ones. But one of my favorite interviews that we're going to start this special show off with is with my good friend Langston Galloway. I call him my little brother. He calls me his big brother. I was blessed to have met him during his tenure with the Knicks, and we've developed a friendship. So... When, we, when, we, when I talked to Langston, he had just signed the contract, a three-year contract with the Detroit Pistons. So this is the interview where Langston, you know, had signed his contract with the Detroit Pistons. And I just wanted to find out, you know, how excited he was and, you know, what was he expecting during his new role, his new tenure with this new team. So here's the interview between me and my good friend, my little brother, Langston Galloway from the Detroit Pistons. I got a special guest with me today, guys. My good friend Langston Galloway from the Detroit Pistons is calling in. What's up, Langston? How you feeling, brother? Lord, what's going on, big bro? How's everything, man? I'm hanging in there, man. I really appreciate you calling in to the show, uh, taking a, a time away from your busy schedule. Nah, nah, I appreciate you. Uh, you had me on. Had me on. Appreciate it. All right, so I got a couple questions that I want to ask you, brother. Uh, that the listeners might be interested in, in in knowing. So, you know, your path, Langston, to the NBA was a bit different than some players in the league. Could you just explain to the listeners the road you traveled to get to the NBA? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's well versed with, uh, with a lot of different bumps and roll, bumps and bruises down the road. But, uh, 
I mean, hey, not not getting drafted and uh, sixteen teams passing on you, so that's that's a hurdle you got to got to get over it and and uh, get an opportunity to to go to a summer league team and say, all right, well, let me try to make the most of this opportunity and uh, going out there showcasing my skills and and uh, and the day when when New York had the opportunity to uh, just let me go out there and do my thing, I did that and uh, and then when I finally got to the D League after being cut from from training camp. Uh, I mean, hey, I literally just just stay consistent and uh, and continue to just 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 continue to get better each and every day. And that's what my mindset was. It didn't matter what circumstances I was going on through the ups and the downs, but just being consistent. And uh, and, and hey, when I when I got my opportunity to get my ten day, my first ten day with the Knicks, I went out there and just hey, just went out there, just dove on the floor, whatever I could do to to, to help my chances. That's what that's what I did. All right, now you you went to St. Joseph University in Philly, correct? Yep, yep. Now while you were there, did you guys ever make it to the NCAA tournament? Yeah, yeah, we made it uh, my senior year. Um, we actually played uh, UConn in, in the second round, and uh, it was crazy that year. We we actually had them on the ropes. We had them beat. Uh, end up going to overtime and losing in overtime, but uh, they ended up winning the national championship that year. So it was it was a crazy outcome that we played the national champ. So that was crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's, it's it it sucks to lose, but I guess that you know the silver lining might be you lost to at least the champions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That we at least take away a small defeat from that. Yeah. So now after your season, after your senior season, you touched on that you didn't get drafted, right? So yeah. uh, how was the process? With getting signed with the New York Knicks, the the process was was real slow. Um, like I said, going from um, playing in the in the summer league, I, I knew I, I wanted to play with some team that that had an opportunity for me to, to squeeze in and and they had a young roster uh, full of guards. So I was like, well, this, this might be a good opportunity for me to try to fit in here. And uh, being a one and a two was was perfect for for the Knicks because they were they were just changing up with Phil Jackson just getting there. And uh, I mean, I went there. Some of the played well. Uh, then they they offered me an uh, invite to training camp uh, up at uh, at Army. Uh, really showcased myself, but uh, ended up getting cut. So uh, it just it, it really fueled me to say, hey, I want to want to accomplish my dreams and make it any way possible. Now, did did the Knicks get in touch with your agent, or did your agent reach out to the Knicks? Uh, when when the whole process was going down, it really was just a back and forth. Really, I mean, uh, when it first uh, got going with trying to get me on the summer league roster, my agent reached out to them, seeing uh, if I could get opportunity. And then uh, we also had had a meeting um, to to go back a little further. We uh, they have a, a camp for seniors called uh, called Portsmouth, and uh, I played well there. And they they had a meeting with me and. We did a whole questionnaire uh, with me, just just them trying to get some knowledge on me and play well and, and really showcase that, uh, that hey, I, I can I can be be a force to record in this league and and that's what I've been doing ever since, doing ever since. Now I know um, sometimes all you need is an opportunity to get your foot in the door, but how difficult was it going back and forth between the D League, well, it's the G League now, and the yeah. NBA? So I know there was a time when you got called up. Did you ever get sent back to the D League? No, no. When I when I got my opportunity with the D League, my first ten day uh, played well, and uh, and the second second ten days uh, I, I played well again. And uh, they said, "Hey, we're gonna sign you to a two year deal." And uh, I was I was ecstatic. And 
And I just, I really credit the guys around me because they really helped me with saying, all right, this, this is what you need to do to, to try to make it past this point. And, uh, and it, it was definitely helpful. Definitely helpful. Well, I definitely enjoyed you when, you, when you know, during your stay in New York. And, uh, you know, it was a blessing to be able to meet you and get to know you and become friends with you. But how would you describe your tenure with the New York Knicks? Oh, no, I really, I really enjoyed my, my time with the Knicks. Uh, I wish... Uh, everything would have would have continued to to progress, but uh, I mean, hey, things things didn't work out. But uh, I, I really enjoyed my time there, and the coaching staff uh, was all phenomenal. And uh, I mean, hey, like I, I built so many relationships in New York. Uh, was has been great. I mean, building a relationship with you as well, Lord, and just so many people that's around the uh, the city of New York is is unbelievable. Something unbelievable. Now, you know, there's this whole thing going on with Carmelo Anthony. Phil Jackson was trying to push him out the door, and he was saying he wanted to stay. And then when the Knicks went back to him and asked him if he wanted to stay, now he's ready to go out the door. And being that you had the opportunity to play with Carmelo Anthony while you were, Nick, I just want to ask you, and I'm sure the listeners want to know, how was he as a teammate? No, actually, as a teammate, he's he's a great Great teammate. Um, he he always is a guy that you can really learn from. And uh, I actually had my locker was too too down from him uh, during the season and during uh, um, when we played at the arena. And uh, it, it was pretty cool just to learn from him and like uh, pick his brain about different things that was going on. So uh, I, re- I really appreciated uh, every moment I had to, to learn from him and uh, take away a lot a lot of different things in life from. Him. Now, I, me personally, I thought you got the short end of the stick with how the Knicks dealt with your contract situation when you were a free agent at season's end. But in the end, it all worked out for you. So did you feel betrayed at all by the Knicks, Langston? No, no, I, I didn't feel betrayed at all. I didn't feel um, that it was uh, it's just, just a, a lack of, I guess you say, communication between us both. And uh, we... we 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 definitely uh, had had a, a good time and a bad time, but we we made the most of it um, being being together for sure. So so you didn't you turn around and you signed a deal with the Pelicans, and you're originally from Louisiana. How yep. did you feel when you signed the contract with the Pelicans to return home to play? Oh, it was exciting. It was really exciting to to go back home and play uh, for my family and my friends, and uh, and I had. At that point, I hadn't been home to play uh, for about six years, so uh, it really was was a, was a cool experience to, to to go back home and play play with them. Now, it must have been a great feeling to play in front of your family and friends. Like you said, it was your first time going back home and playing, so I'm pretty sure that had to be a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, growing up, I mean, at, at that time it was the Hornets, and then uh, and now it's the Pelicans. And I mean, hey, going, I remember going to the game, sitting all the way up in the rafters, just like man. I, Hope I can get here one day, and then hey, it's a dream come true to be on that floor playing in front front of front of fans. Now it was bittersweet for me because um, I was upset that you wasn't in New York no more, but I was happy, um, you know, as a friend that you was going home to play. And then during your stay in New Orleans, you ended up getting traded to Sacramento uh, for Demarcus Cousins. Um, what were your thoughts when you got traded from the New Orleans Pelicans to the Sacramento Kings? Uh, I mean, at the time, uh, I, I was shocked. Just uh, didn't I really didn't see it coming. I was uh, I just got home from the from the All Star game and and uh, just shocked that it was it was it, it all went down. So then next thing you know, I had to uh, 
to just hey pack up everything that I had and, and, and move out to Sacramento. But uh, I mean, I knew at the end of the day it's a business move, and uh, it, I mean, hey, it all worked out uh, in the end because Sacramento gave me opportunity out there to play the position I, I really want to play, which is point guard. Now, the question I want to ask you is, a lot of times some players pay attention to what's being said in the media and in the papers. And me personally, I heard a few rumblings that your names was in trade talks. Did you know or uh, did anybody tell you that your name was being tossed around? Did you, you know, did anybody mention it to you at all? Or do you just not pay attention to that kind of stuff? No, no, I really don't pay attention to that stuff because, I mean, that's, that's just all he, she, he say, she say stuff, so... I mean, all I can do is control what I can control, and uh, that's go out there on that court and uh, just just do what I love and and, and play ball. So uh, everything else is is uh, just uh, it happens for a reason. Now, I was just staying in Sacramento while you was there. <laughs> it was great. It was, I really enjoyed Sacramento. It's a, a great city for a lot of different people that you that that don't really know uh, that Sacramento is the capital of California. So. You, you go out there and you think one thing, but, uh, I mean, the fans out there are great. And, I mean, the whole community really just, just lives up for, for Sacramento games. Now, at the end of the season, you chose to opt out of the final year of your contract, making you a free agent. Could you just share with the listeners the thought process behind making that type of decision? Yeah, when when, when you make a decision like that, it's, it's, it's definitely difficult because – you really have to weigh out all your options. Um, you have to see which teams are really uh, interested in you, and uh, and then you, you don't want to opt out and, and leave uh, the the opportunity to play and the money on the table as well. So uh, it, it was a blessing that uh, it all worked out for me, and, and um, just just being able to find a team that that really uh, was interested in me. Uh, and, and and a coach that was uh, also just, just one that's going to push you to the limit, and that's what we were looking for, and, and being able to find that team in Detroit. So um, what does your off-season uh, workout routine consist of? Because I know you, know you post videos on Instagram of you working out. So just kind of give the listeners a little rundown of, of what a day in the life of Langston Galloway, uh, you know, how, how does it go for you on a day where you have to work out and prepare yourself? Yeah, normally, um, especially in the summertime, I try to. I, I like to go early, so I like to get in the gym, uh, get basketball in about uh, seven or six o'clock. Or if I if I feel like getting a lift in before that, I will probably go lift at about five or six o'clock and get basketball in right after that. So that way, my morning gets started early, and then uh, once I go from there, I go towards. Uh, Probably another workout right in between there in the afternoon time right there, get a little food. Uh, so that's, I mean, hey, that's that's five hours right there. And then at nighttime, I normally just get some more work in with working on my handles, working on just a lot of shots, and just uh, just being more consistent. That's all I, I continue to improve on is being more consistent and, and, and working on being a point guard. Yeah, I really don't think people realize what goes into the, you know, the hard work and dedication that you guys put into perfecting your craft. You know, I know you guys put in a lot of hours, and um, but let me congratulate you again on signing a three-year deal with the Detroit Pistons. Uh, how excited are you to embark on your new journey, bro? I, I, I'm really excited, and uh, I just, I just, I really can't wait. Um, people have been asking me pretty much all summer to say, hey, what, what do you feel about Detroit? How are you guys going to do? I mean, I'm really excited because we have a young core. 
Uh, we have a great coach and Stan Van Gundy, and then uh, we, we we got some some new additions on this on the squad with me. So I'm I'm really excited, and uh, it, sh- it should be a good good experience to be out here in Detroit for the next three years, and uh, it's it's a blessing to, to have something long term like that. Now, have you had the chance to sit down and have a, a conversation with your new coach Stan Van Gundy to discuss what his plans or what they have, what plans they have for you for this upcoming season? Yeah, yeah, I had a chance to sit down with him and uh, and just just talk basketball. I mean, uh, he, he's he's a coach that's that's pretty straightforward with, with the the plan of uh, what's going ahead, and uh, and he, he really just just wanted to to express to me that hey, look, we know you you're very versatile and you can you can play one or two, but the the biggest thing with him is just the defensive side of it and being able to guard the one and the two, which is huge. Uh, it's huge in this league to guard ones and twos. Because that's 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 what the game goes through nowadays, and uh, and that's what I, I I literally lay my hat on every night. Is that hey, I go out there and stop the best player or whoever I have to guard that night and try to stop them, and that's and that's what I'm gonna uh, always uh, be be my label in this league. Now I, I see that you hold uh, free clinics for the youth. How important is it for you to give back to today's youth? It's huge. It's huge. Um, I'm a big big believer in uh and being able to uh get back to the youth and uh and especially back home um i have, a, I have my, my uh, second annual basketball langston galloway basketball clinic tomorrow actually and uh, i mean i'm really excited about it and uh i just can't wait to to just meet the kids and uh and just just see uh what, what they can show me i mean uh i know it's, it's a free clinic and you never know what the turnout will be, but just to just to have the kids out there and have a good good time and see them smile is all, what it's all about. Now, when is when is training camp open up for you guys with the Detroit Pistons? As I'm sure you have to be really excited to get that going. Yeah, we uh we actually start up uh, uh probably the first weekend of uh, October is like official training camp. Uh, so that that'll be special because uh, this year. They uh they shortened training camp so that way uh we have shorter uh back to backs and throughout the season so it, it should be fun to uh to see how that works out this year especially. Now I've gotten the chance to know you and we've become friends, and I know I know this much that you come from a great family, you have great parents, and um how yeah. how did the whole basketball thing start up with? I mean, was your dad a basketball player? How did that you know how did Langston how did Langston get to starting to play ba- basketball? Uh, I mean, it's it's really uh, just throughout my family. My my dad's a big basketball player, but uh, I mean, throughout my whole family, everybody played basketball, um, and then he also had some football players in there as well. So uh, it was it was a mixture of uh, a little bit of both, and uh, it, it it meant a lot to me because I knew that uh, being able to to play a game I love from I mean the age of three, being able to pick up a ball and and, and shoot it. Uh, that that was special just to be able to say, hey, I made it going from the little age of three, just picking up a basketball and wanting to see what what this game would do for me. And, I mean, I've been all over the world just to play this this, this, this game I love. So, I mean, it's, it's exciting to, to know that, hey, you, your pops was a, was a basketball player, but to say, hey, when, one day when I have some kids that, hey, your dad was in the NBA and, and was able to, to really hold his own. So that would be cool. That would be special. Now behind behind every good man, they say there's a great woman. And I've had the opportunity to meet your wife, and she's you know she's a special woman. So how does she um help you out, you know, as far as supporting you and stuff when it comes to all this stuff? She she she's a great uh um, just 
uh, asset to me. I mean, uh, she she's she's a better woman than than I am a man. I mean, she she's always there for me uh, whenever I need her, and uh, and especially like uh, what's going on right now. She she's actually going going back to school to get her MBA at uh, at Tulane, and uh, and I'm I'm like the 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 house sitter. I'm I'm literally trying to check out the house, make sure everything's good, and she right. and she, and she, and she and she's running the world. She running she's running the world. So. I'm like, look, go ahead, you got it, you got it. So I just try to go out and work out, do my thing. But I mean, hey, she she's she's trying to conquer the world, and uh, and she she's very special, very special. That's awesome. God bless. But Langston, yeah. I, I I wish you nothing but the best. And you know, I call you my little brother. You know, yeah. you know, I'm going to be pulling for you. But I really want to thank you for calling in, and hopefully, we can have you come on the show again sometime during the season. But I just want to say, God bless you, little bro. And thanks again for spending some time with us on the Lloyd A. Thompson and Mad Mike show. Hey, thank, thank you so much for having me on, Lloyd. I appreciate you, big bro, for everything. And uh, hey, God bless and, uh, and take care. All right. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. It was great having Langston on the show. And we're looking forward to having him return, you know, in 2018. The next uh, clip I'm going to play is not so much an interview. It was a rant that I went on uh, with Phil Jackson. Uh, right before he got fired, uh, this was during the uh, the end of last season, and uh, you know he kind of said some things about Chris Porzingis and went out and said some things about Carmelo Anthony. And at this point, I had just enough of Phil Jackson, and I wanted him out of town very badly. So the next clip that we're gonna play is my rant about Phil Jackson. So enjoy this clip, listeners. All right, here we go. Oh, boy, I got to uh, calm myself down before I get myself going again, people. Phil Jackson has got to get the heck out of New York and go back to Montana and sit on a porch and eat some damn Wheaties or something, anything. Just get the heck out of New York. So I ask all of you, what has Phil Jackson done good for this franchise in the three years that he's been here? What has he done? Oh, I'll tell you exactly what he's done. He's managed to destroy this team even more than what it already was. <laughs> Let me see. Let's look into my daggone crystal ball and see. Oh, great crystal ball. Tell me who is the worst VP of basketball operations of them all. Bling! Phil damn Jackson. It's like giving you the keys to my decent working Lamborghini and I say, hey, fix this car and make it what it once was, a great running high-powered machine. And I get it back from you and it's a piece of crap. Please let me break down and read off all the wonderful transactions that Phil Jackson has made and which I say that sarcastically, by the way, for everyone, including those that had that dumbfounded look on your face right about now. The Knicks have been 80 and 166 since Phil Jackson has been here. 80 and 166, damn it. This is the Knicks, a once prominent franchise that plays in a mecca of basketball, which is Madison Square Garden in New York City. This was once a team that players would dream about playing for and being a, and dream about playing in the garden. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna this I'm actually reading off to you. He traded away Tyson Chandler for Jose Calderon, Samuel Dallenbear, Wayne Ellerton, Shane Larkin, and two first round draft picks. 
Now, he was getting rid of Tyson Chandler to start a youth movement, but then you trade Tyson Jan- Chandler for Jose Calderon, who's 80 years old. 80 years old, and you start a youth movement. Okay, with one of those two picks, he drafted Clea Anthony early. Not bad, but, I mean, let's face it, Clea Anthony early is not even with the damn team anymore. He then turned around and signed Quincy Acey and Travis Outlaw, who are no longer with the team. He traded away J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert for Lou Amundsen, Alex Girk. Who in the heck is Alex Girk? Who is Alex Girk? And the Cavaliers' second-round pick and Lance Thomas, who he then turned around and signed to a dumb four-year contract close to $30 million, a player that is not worth $30 million and probably wouldn't have got it no place else, people. He then turned around, he waved Damari Stoudemire, he traded away Tim Hardaway Jr. for Jerry and Grant, and then he signed Robin Lopez, Derek Williams, and Aaron Aflalo. He then turned around and traded Robin Lopez and Jerry and Grant to the Chicago Bulls for Derek Rose, Justin Holiday, and a second-round pick. Now, I actually like that move. But even then, with me liking that move, you see where the heck that move got us with the eighth daggone pick in this year's draft. He signed Willie Hernan Gomez, which I like Willie Hernan Gomez, and Willie Hernan Gomez continues to get better. But then he turns around and signs Joaquin Noah, who only played 28 games for the Bulls last year and was hurt his final couple years with the Bulls for four years at $72 million. Then he turned around Courtney Lee, four years for $48 million. He signs Melo, which I love the Melo signing, but then he turns around and he gives Melo a no-trade clause. Then after giving him a no-trade clause, he turns around and he wants to get Melo out of town. He talks bad about Melo. He gives Melo grief. He gives Melo all of this stuff. And now you created this monster. You did, Phil Jackson. Melo didn't create this monster. You created this monster. You signed Melo to that deal, and now you want to get rid of him, and now you want to say bad things, and you want to push him out the door. Well, guess what? I said this to you guys in the previous show that if I was mellow, I would give Phil Jackson the biggest damn stiff arm that I could give him. And people, mellow just did that because mellow went to Phil Jackson and he told Phil Jackson, I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay. Good for you, mellow. Good for you. The Knicks, the only two teams that's going to be in the NBA Finals probably in the next couple years, unless another super team is formed, is the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So unless Phil Jackson is going to trade me to Golden State or Cleveland, I don't want to go anywhere. I might as well lose where I'm happy, which is exactly what he's doing. Then he turns around and he craps on Kristaps Porzingis. Okay. This is all over. Now he he has a meeting, and this is what he says during the meeting. A lot of rumors flying around and reports, too, that you've been listening to some trade offers for Kristaps Porzingis. Is that, in fact, happening? We're getting calls. Um, you know, as much as we value Kristaps and, you know, what he's done for us, when a guy doesn't show up at an exit meeting, everybody starts speculating on, you know, the duration or years in movability from a club. So we've been getting calls. And, uh, you know, uh, we're listening, but we're not uh, intrigued yet at this level. 
but uh, as much as we love this guy, you know, we have to do what's good for our club. And what would be good for the club? Why would you do that? Future. You know, what, what it brings is it brings two starters and a draft pick or, you know, something that's even beyond that is something that we have to look at as far as uh, going down the road. We know that what he is. He's a unicorn and he's special. Was missing that exit interview a big deal or not? Um, I don't think I've ever had a player over 25 years of coaching, maybe 30, not coming to an exit meeting. Um, so it's, it's not happened to me. Um, I know it happens to other people and other players. Um, and his, you know, his brother and his agent have said, you know, downplayed it. But, you know, still it's a chance for a person to express themselves. And I had a real good relationship with Chris Dobbs over the last two years. So it was kind of surprising. Knicks fans were a little uneasy as to what's going on here. What can you say to them? Well, I think we know what we're doing. That's what I can say to them. Although it's not been apparent in our record in the last couple of years, we've grown from within. We've got young players that are you know, on their move up. It takes time to rebuild with youth. Uh, and I think to have confidence in the fact that uh, we're going to have good players, we're going to have a good team, and we're going to be on the court competitive. So Phil Jackson says that the reason why he entertained trade offers for Kristaps Porzingis was because Kristaps Porzingis decided to skip an exit meeting. Big deal. All right. I can even go and say it's, it was unprofessional for him to skip that meeting. I would say it's unprofessional to skip a meeting if your boss requires for you to have a meeting. I would say it's unprofessional for you to do that. Okay, so I can live with that. I can live with him saying that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, people. Christos Pazingas is 21 years old, and then you turn around and say you would trade him away for the future? He's 21. He is your future, dummy. What are you going to trade future for future? You have a kid on your team right now that you know what you're getting from him. You called him a unicorn. Someone that's 7'3", someone that can create a shot off the dribble, someone that can shoot the three-point ball, someone that can block shots. He has to get better at defending, and he has to get stronger at scoring in a low post. But you don't get 7'3 players that can do that. And you were entertaining trading him because you were upset because he skipped the exit meeting? Now, who's the kid? Christos Porzingis or Phil Jackson? Then you say, in the 25 years of you being, of you coaching, you haven't had a player skip an exit meeting. And eh, wrong, wrong, Phil, wrong. Shaquille O'Neal skipped the exit meeting with you. So what are you talking about? Think about what you say before you do it because you're already under fire before you even take the microphone, which even shows New York fans even more that you don't even care about this team. Then, then to top it off, Al Trockwitz asks him, well, what can you say about New York fans who are feeling a little bit uneasy now? We know what we're doing. O-M-G. We know what you really know what you're doing, Phil Jackson, in the three years that the Knicks have been, that you've been in charge with the Knicks. You've really shown us that you know what, what you're doing. A youth movement, you have guys on your roster right now that you just recently signed that are over 25 years old. Joe King Noah, ancient mummy, 
He got dust coming out of his sneakers when he runs up and down the court. Lance Thomas, he's not young. Kyle Quinn, he's not young. Who are you referring to, Ron Baker? He's a bum. He's a bum. Well, I mean, he's a bum by NBA standards. He's not a bum because, obviously, he's an NBA player. But I've seen Ron Baker play in the NBA D-League, and I've seen him play on the court at Madison Square Garden, and he's a bum. He's somebody that the Knicks are trying to make better than what he actually is. And then your other youth movement is the 21-year-old that you're trying to trade away. So, Phil... Let's please get it together. Let's please get it together because right now you sound like a complete moron. And okay, for those of you that feel that feel that Phil Jackson has done a good job and that he's responsible for drafting Kristaps Porzingis, let me drop a bombshell for you guys right now. It wasn't Phil Jackson that drafted Kristaps Porzingis. It was a man by the name of Clarence Gaines Jr., Phil Jackson, he barely scouts. He barely travels on road trips. He doesn't know collegiate talent. He's hired awful coaches who either has had no experience, Mr. Derek Fisher, or have been dreadful as a coach, Kurt Rambis and Jeff Hornacek. And even when they do do a good job, not Kurt Rambis didn't do a good job, but at least at one point, Jeff Hornacek had the Knicks Second in the Eastern Conference this past season. And what happens? Phil Jackson has to stick his damn big nose in the middle of things and starts messing stuff up and then starts telling Jeff Hornacek, oh, you need to run the triangle offense. What was the result of that? The Knicks ended up losing a bunch of games before the All-Star break, ended up falling out of the playoff race, and ended up almost, I think they finished third to last in the damn conference. Third to last in a damn conference because Phil Jackson wants to run a triangle system that no one in this entire world wants to run. Other teams may use a snippet of it, a snippet of it, but nobody in the NBA is running their damn offense through the triangle. But let's get to this eighth pick. Oh, before I do that, before we get to this eighth pick that the Knicks made, Okay, I just want you guys to know that the first deal that Phil Jackson made as vice president of the New York Knickerbockers was signing Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom, a guy who had personal issues and was dealing with demons at that particular point in time. I hear Lamar Odom's a great guy, and I wish Lamar Odom nothing but the best, and I hope he continues to get better individually and as a person but that was the first move that he made was Lamar Odom was Lamar Odom okay Lamar Odom but let's get to this eighth pick all right the Knicks went and drafted Frank I'm going to call him Frank N that's his damn name right now Frank N okay now Frank N averaged six points per game 2.1 rebounds and he had under two assists he shot 45% from the field and 39% from three-point range. And also there were reports that his assist numbers were low because he played the two-guard and sometimes he played the three-spot over in Europe. Then if he did that, why in the hell would the Knicks turn around and draft him? Why would they draft him if he's not a pure point guard? Now, to me, Europe is a, prof- it's a pro league. 
It's a big step down from the NBA, but it's a pro league. Now, if he's averaging those, if those are his stats in that league, you know what, Nick fans? I am real nervous. I'm real nervous like I'm in a horror film right now and I'm about to piss my damn pants. That's how nervous I am right now about this kid that the Knicks pick. This is how nervous that I am. But I am just completely done talking about Phil Jackson right now. I'm done. I definitely lost my marbles on that one, listeners. And I tell you right right now, if you would have hooked a high blood, blood pressure machine up to me at that particular point in time, it would have blew the whole machine up. And that's how, you know, that's how I really felt about that situation. But the next clip I'm going to play is the New York Yankees. They had a very uh, magical season in 2017. Uh, they exceeded everybody's expectations and ended up uh, falling one game short of playing in the World Series. Uh, this particular clip was, you know, a slight disagreement between me and Mike, Mad Mike, over a play. That was done during the, you know, the Yankees were down two games to none at this particular point in time. And it was a pivotal play in the game uh, where it was a ball hit and, you know, a non-fundamental play, in my opinion, that was made in the outfield. Mad Mike saw it another way. And, you know, after the play was over, the Yanks ended up being down two games to none. So we're going to play this rule, this clip between, uh, you know, with the Yankees being down 2-0 to the Houston Astros and me and the Mad Mike. Uh, having a slight disagreement over the play that caused them to be down two games to zero. Here it is. Welcome back to the Lloyd A. Thompson and Mad Mike Sports Talk Show. We got some baseball going down in the boogie down Bronx later on this evening, Mad Mike, as the Yankees take on the Houston Astros in game three of the ALCS series. And I want to get your thoughts on the first two games as the Yankees lost game one, two to one, and they lost game two, the exact same score, two to one. But the Yankees are not hitting the damn ball, Matt Mike. Nah, the Yankees aren't. So depressing, right? <laughs> um, first it's amazing, off, first it's off, amazing like how the... your whole demeanor changed <laughs> when you said when you said that. So you know, it, it, listen. At the end of the day. We got to give credit to the Yankees' star rotation. I thought Masahiro Tanaka pitched a really good game in game one, and I thought Severino pitched a really good game in game two. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... Uh, my demeanor changed because I, I, I've seen opportunities. I, I've seen that they've had plenty of opportunities, you know, throughout the playoffs, really. I, I mean, you know, some of these guys have stunk the whole playoff, and... Before I, I kill anybody, let's say it's been a pretty, it's, it's a successful season. I mean, these guys ended up beating the the, the Cleveland Indians. Uh, Brett Gardner in the ninth inning of Game Five put on one of the greatest at bats I've ever seen in my life um, to to put that game out of reach and, and help them move on. But I don't know, man. As soon as Friday hit, just felt like like you know the pressure kind of built up. You know, Aaron Judge. He, he he's had some good at bats. He's still striking out a lot. Um, these these umpires, I don't know what Major League Baseball is going to do to to help him out because these umpires are getting his strike zone all wrong. Uh, I don't know how many more times we got to see him get called strikes on balls two inches off the plate. You know, an inch and a half below his knee because they're not so used to you. You know, they're not used to such a tall individual. And you know, in the batter's box. 
They, Major League Baseball has to fix that. Gary Sanchez, uh, I, I don't know what's going on. He's not seeing the the, the uh, breaking pitch, if you ask me. Uh, the, the, John Smoltz has said it numerous times. Uh, all you got to do is throw him a breaking ball with two strikes. He's so aggressive that anything in the dirt, he's going to swing on top of it. And if John Smoltz sees that, that means the coaches, are, uh, you know, the Houston coaches are seeing it. That means the pitchers know it. And he needs to fix it. He needs to fix it immediately. Now, uh, I don't know what you see as what, as the biggest issue they've had so far. But one of the biggest issues that I've seen is Chase Headley. Uh, this guy can't hit. This guy's 0 for 15 in you're the playoffs any with eight strikeouts. The, you're not getting any hitting from any of their DHs. Yeah, but, uh, but, but, but here's Ellsbury's the thing. Ellsbury's not it, hitting. It, Matt Holliday is not hitting. What do they do? Well, well, I, I start with him first, and here's why. Because Ellsbury is 0 for 9, but he's reached base three times. Uh, whereas Chase Headley is 0 for 15. He has six more bats. 0 for 15, he hasn't reached base at all. And, and you know, let's be, let's be fair to Matt Holliday. He probably only gave Matt Holliday, you know, the, the uh, game against Dallas Keuchel because if Chase Headley goes 0 for 3, 0 for 4, all of a sudden we're saying, man, Chase Headley's 0 for 18, 0 for 19. You know, where, I, I mean, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball, and that's the guy that you choose to bring Matt Holiday into face. It, it, it was just kind of mind-blowing to me. He never had a shot. But, you, you know, there's some other issues I saw. You know, uh, to be fair to Greg Bird, he's not the fastest runner, but Greg Bird's got to learn how to slide. It, it, it wasn't the first time on, on Friday night where I've seen him. He slides with his lead leg. It, it always kicks up. So when he's when he's running... You know, when he slides into home or whatever base it is, they actually have an opportunity to tag him before he gets his, his foot down. If he keeps his foot down sliding in, he beats, you know, he's not tagged out by McCann. On, you know, you know what I'm talking about on Friday night where Aaron Judge hits the single. And, and this blows my mind because it was actually on a 3-2 count. Greg Bird is supposed to be, you know, breaking for third. He, if he's running as hard as he possibly can, then, you know, that that's that he's safe to begin with. But. Whatever, man. Well, here's the thing. There's a, I think the biggest problem again with the Yankees, and despite you know Chase Headley and, and all that, there's a lot of swing and misses. You know they struck out 14 times, 14 times in Game One, and then turned around and struck out 13 times in Game Two. That's just not going to crack it. I know. I know Keiko is a great pitcher. And Verlander is a great pitcher, but again, the Yankees haven't been hitting at all. They weren't hitting in the Cleveland series. They're lucky they got out of that. And this is continuing when they're not hitting in the Houston series. And, all you know, Cleveland, to me, I, that's the one team I wanted to face. I didn't want to touch Houston or face Houston until now. I mean, obviously, we have no choice, but Houston plays the Yankees really well. And Houston, again, you just can't continue to perform like this and play like this against good teams. You're going to run into a brick wall and not be able to break through it. Pressure burst pipes. And the one thing that Houston does is they keep the pressure on, right? So, I mean, in the end of the I day... I just think, man, Mike, Altuve, and it wasn't even like that ball that was hit. When he scored the game one and run in game two, that ball didn't roll to the wall, man. Mike, that ball was cut off by Judge. Now, granted, Judge overthrew Whoa. the cutoff, man. No, no, no. That's what I was just going to say to you. Uh, you know, because, and it's funny that you mentioned that, because 
most most people that are, uh, you know analysis or, or you know analysts or whatever it is, they, they don't play the game. They don't realize that that ball, uh, if that ball goes to the right place, Altuve doesn't even get sent home. You're right. You're absolutely right. If if Judge hits the cutoff, if he hits Sterling Castro, who is the right cutoff man to hit, and then overshoot him, because when Didi threw the ball, the ball short hopped Sanchez, and it was a short, obviously, you know, I catch, you know, in a semi-pro league that I play in, and short hops, although they're not the easiest play to make, I thought that that short hop was the play that Sanchez should have made, and I don't know if he went to go make the tag before he caught the ball, but I, I feel it was a play that he should have made. But all in all, the relay was off. It was off to begin with. And that's what caused the problem from the jump. Was that yeah, Aaron I, Judge overshot Sterling Castro? Uh, you know what? I don't even think. If you go watch the replay, uh, I don't think he overshot Castro. I don't think Castro went out to get the ball. Because if you look at where Didi caught it, uh, Castro's still in, in eye shot of that replay. I don't think Castro went out and gave him a target. I think that, that Judge cut it off, and, and because he didn't have a target, he, he went to second base. But we know that that's not where that ball is supposed to go. And the fact, and, and I think the third base coach sees that ball going to second base. He's sending Altuve, specifically because I, of I that. Only, I, I mean, from my, from my point of view, it looked like Castro was out there. And from Judge's reaction, it looked like he knew he should have hit Castro. And he didn't, you know, and, and then, you know, the, the play, you know, again, obviously, you know, Didi had to turn around and they said it may have been some obstruction by the runner, but the runner was basically sliding in a second and kind of popping up as he hit the base. But yeah, either way, you're right. I, maybe I agree said, with him. Maybe, you know, maybe Castro usually is a cutoff man. You throw your arms up so your outfielder can see you. You put both arms up like, here I am, hit me. And that, it didn't look like Castro put his arms up. It looked like he was just standing there. Yeah, no, I agree. But you want to know, I, 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 once again, I haven't seen a replay because they haven't shown, you know, how they do the whole field shot where we can see all the moving parts. I haven't been able... To, to find that replay. I haven't seen that one, uh, you know, out there yet. So I haven't been able to tell you if he did or didn't. I, I can just see just from the replays of, of, of the throw coming in and just where everyone is in the field. I don't, I just think Castro assumed that the ball was going to go to the, to the gap. I don't think he, you know, and that's my own personal opinion. I don't think he thought judge was going to, was going to be able to cut that off before it got to the wall. Yeah. I mean, so I don't think he, infielder. Whether it gets to the wall or gets cut off, you still got to get into your cutoff position. So no, you're right, but I think he just assumes, hey, if the wall, if the ball gets to the wall, and and uh, remember Altuve is is, uh, is running, uh, I think he just assumes that we don't have a shot. So you, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not. Like I said, I, I didn't see. You know, I, I I didn't see if he did or didn't go out. But I can tell you that he was way too close to Didi. Uh, me being a shortstop, I can tell you that he's way too close to Didi for me to say that he went out to take that cutoff. Yeah, nah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I have to, I have to, I mean, I, I, for, to, in my opinion, I remember the play as it happened, and I don't remember him being nowhere near Didi. If anything, he may have been too far into the, he may have been too far out to the outfield, you know, because Judge has a strong arm, but I thought, you know, Judge just overshot him, and he was nowhere near the ball, as it bounced to Didi, I just think that the biggest mistake, A, was that he didn't put his hands up 
so Judge could she, see him, and Judge's reaction was just to get the ball in because he knew Altuve was running, and he just completely threw the ball a second instead of throwing the ball to the cutoff man as the cutoff man should have had his arms raised, and Castro didn't do that. But, you know, despite all of that, the bottom line is, man, you can't strike out 27 damn times and win baseball games. The Yankees need to start hitting the damn ball. Bottom line, in the end, me and Mad Mike both agreed that the Yankees at that particular point in time weren't playing fundamentally sound baseball. They ended up making a series out of it and ended up losing four games of three. So it was something to be uh, to look forward to in the build off of coming into the upcoming 2018 season. Uh, the next interview that I'm going to play is we have a very good friend, Joe Rivera, columnist from the Sporting News. He's always been kind and gracious enough to take time out of his busy schedule to jump on the show and give his thoughts and opinions. Uh, so this is a clip of an interview with Joe Rivera uh, after the Yankees season ended. And it was kind of like a recap of, of, uh, of the season that the Yankees had. So here's a clip uh, with us and Joe Rivera, sports columnist from the Sporting News. Guys, we have our baseball guru calling in. Joe Rivera, columnist from the Sporting News. Joe, what's going on, brother? Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us and our listeners. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, the Yankees' playoff run came to an end, and they struck out a total of 76 times in seven games in a series against the Houston Astros and couldn't hit themselves out of a paper bag. But to the other, you know, their pitching, which I thought would be their weak point, was actually their strong point. So I just want to get your thoughts. You know, me and Matt might want to get your thoughts on the Yankees' playoff run this year. Well, there's a few layers to it, right? Uh, so you look at it and you say this team is kind of it's kind of a combination of the 2015 Astros and the 2015 Cubs, where the 2015 Astros were a very home run heavy team. They didn't really believe in contact a lot, and that's what cost them in the playoffs. But on the other side, you look at them as com uh, compared to the 2015 Cubs, where they were just so loaded with talent, and they arrived a year ahead of schedule. So I think moving forward, you're going to see, and, and part of it too, just to backtrack, is the team was under 500 on the road this year. I mean, they were 40 and 41, so they were just about 500, but still under. So for them to finish the playoffs one and six on the road, even though the one was obviously a big win versus Cleveland, it doesn't really surprise me because it's a young team that's still still trying to figure out how to gel on the road, how to win on the road, going into hostile territory and, and really dealing with, with two good teams. Listen, Cleveland and, and Houston both won 100 games in the regular season. And even if you want to say Houston benefited from a pretty weak division in the AL West, winning 100 games is still is still a heck of an accomplishment. So, uh, yeah, I think I think this is – if you signed up for 90 wins this year, um, you know, you'd be satisfied if you signed up for a playoff, uh, a playoff appearance, it's, or the season's already a success. So for them to go to Game 7 to the ALCS, it's, the season's a huge, huge win for them. Now, I just want to run over some things with you, Joe, because it's amazing that they got that far. So Brett Gardner hit one – his average was 148. Aaron Judge hit 250. Didi hit 250. Sanchez hit 192. Greg Bird hit 250. Sterling Castro hit 208. Aaron Hicks hit 083, Frazier hit 182, and oddly enough, the one person that actually got benched and was 0 for 11 or something like that, Chase Headley, he was the only person that hit over 300 in the Yankees lineup. 
Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because, I mean, I get what you're saying with the numbers, but at the end of the day, you're still looking at a very, very small sample size in the playoffs. So I guess looking at the average can be a bit misleading. But no, I, I totally understand. Heavy should be playing. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, it, the offense was never really the problem because when you looked at a lot of their at-bats, you weren't really dissatisfied with the at-bats that they were having. Um, I mean, aside from Starlin Castro at times, he was very, very aggressive at the plate. But you, you felt that when they needed to work counts, they worked counts and they played well. And some guys just didn't come through. And that happens in the playoffs. But, yeah, I mean, you got, you got to make something happen um, in key spots in the game. On the road, they just couldn't do it. They had Houston on the ropes a few times uh, in Game 7, and they just couldn't punch through. So, yeah, I think uh, at the end of the day, I really don't think the offense was, was to blame for what happened. Hey, Joe, I, I, um, and touching on some of that, uh, Brian Cashman, I guess, to me, seems to, to have a couple of tough decisions to make. Uh, you know, when you look at Aaron Hicks, Aaron Hicks, I think, was 0 for his last 16 uh, in this series. Uh, Starling Castro, you touched on it. He seemed to have some really bad at-bats. He didn't see, especially in Game 7. Uh, with Greg Bird leading off with that double, it's it, it, you know to quote Paul O'Neill, this that wasn't that bad. Where Starling Castro should be looking to go opposite field and get his job done. Instead, he's looking for the inside fastball so he can pull the ball, which is which is exactly what you don't want to do uh, with a man on second base and nobody out. Uh, you know, thinking about it, uh, do you think Cashman looks at this guy and says? I just can't, you know, maybe the same thing Theo Epstein saw before he decided that the Cubs were ready. I, I just don't think I can teach this guy those little fundamentals. And, and those things are what win, what what wins in the playoffs. Do you think they move on from him at some point in 2018? I think when you're looking at it, he's still under contract for a few years, right? So that's, and, and it's a reasonable contract. It's not a bad contract, so... To try and move him to a team that might need a second baseman, you can probably get a back-end starter back, which helps. Um, but it depends. It's got to be the right fit. It's got to be the right partner. I mean, you know, maybe in Milwaukee, you're looking at Milwaukee. Uh, it's, it's certainly a, a possibility. It's a good fit there. But, again, I think when you're looking at the at-bats that they have, you see you see Greg Bird put in these at-bats. And, and I've said this before, watching a Greg Bird at-bat, it's like watching an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's, it's so, it, is, it is so incredibly calming to see him at the plate. The guy can be down 0-2 in the count, and he'll still come back and battle back. And that's that's a microcosm of what everything this team is. Um, built they're, What they're built as, Brett Garner, Aaron Judge, they work counts. Um, and Starling Castro just doesn't do that, especially in big spots in the game. And I don't know if it's just what he is and as a hitter. It's just his DNA. He's very aggressive. First pitch swings a lot. Um, he never, you, never, you almost never see him in a full count. Uh, and he, he does swing at breaking balls on the outside a lot, too. Uh, so, yeah, I don't really think it's, – it's interesting because you look at it as, well, he's a pretty young guy, relatively speaking. Um, and he's built a pretty good double play combination with, with uh, Didi there. But I just don't see how he fits the mold of the team in the future, especially if you're looking at Gliber Torres next year, um, considering he was supposed to be up this year, and he can very easily slot into that second base spot um, if you want to bring up more youth. So, yeah, I think, I think Cashman is going to explore all of it, and I think Castro might be on the table. 
you don't really feel like he's linked to this team. So I think he's a guy that could go. Um, but if it were to happen, it would have to happen in, in the winter. I don't see him moving at the trade deadline next year. Now, speaking of, you know, you spoke of Greg Bird, and obviously Greg Bird is part of that youth movement, along with Sanchez and Aaron Judge and Luis Severino. Um, moving forward during this offseason, I was looking at something that was saying the Yankees are trying to get under the $197 million tax threshold so that way they could be aggressive in next year's draft. I just want to get your thoughts on the Japanese pitcher that's being tossed around. I'm hearing his name. And then also, you know, do you think, again, you know, the Yankees will be able to move Chase Hadley if they'll resign Todd Frazier? You know, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think just you mentioned Todd Frazier, and, and listen, I was in those clubhouses after those Yankee wins, and you can't even – I can't describe what exactly Todd Frazier means to this team. For him to leave, I don't want to say it would be a massive blow, but it would be felt. And if you can get him on a hometown discount, and listen, he looks like he wants to stay. He says all the right things. His production certainly doesn't warrant uh, a big name, con uh, a big money deal. So for him, for Cashman to look at him and say, "Listen, we'll give you, you know, two years, twenty million dollars," I think that's totally fair. And I think both both parties would would be in favor. And just as an aside, to to show just how much he means to this team. After game uh, five, when Tanaka pitched, and Tanaka comes out of the shower in the clubhouse, he's he's in his towel by his by his locker, and out comes Todd Frazier. He gives him runs over to him, gives him a huge hug, picks him up, lifts him around. A few, they had a good laugh. That's just the kind of guy Frazier is, and and I think that means a lot for a young team to keep them loose. As far as Otani goes, the Japanese pitcher, I think the Yankees will make a run at him. I still think that they have options in-house in the minors where they don't have to spend that money. Uh, you know, it's always a question mark with Japanese pitchers, right? It's still not an exact science. You don't know what you're going to get. He does throw 100. You know, everybody knows what he throws, and he can hit, you know, for whatever that means. But everybody will be signing him for his arm, so... Yeah, I think they could make a run. I'm not sure if they're totally sold, but I, I think they're going to want to give guys in their minors a shot before they really uh, go outside. And for the last point, to your last point, Headley, uh, I can see him being moved. Uh, it's got to, again, it's got to be the right fit because the market isn't particularly strong for bats. Uh, you know, maybe you're looking at San Francisco as a potential spot for him. Uh, and he's still, he's got one year left after this year. He's got one year left on his contract. So if you don't move him, it's okay. Because uh, he can still, you know, play a good, if you want to start him, you can start him or you can play, put him on, put him on the bench and play him off the bench, switch hit and all that stuff. You just hope he can replicate the success that he had this year. Now, now Joe, to, to speak a little bit uh, further into, I guess, they're, they're, too early to tell future plans for, for the offseason, right? Um, I, I think, wouldn't you say that they'd have to figure out what they're doing with Joe Girardi first, being that uh, not only is he not have, you know, a contract for next year, but there, there seems to be some relationships that maybe uh, have soured the Ellsbury relationship, the Dylan Batanzas relationship. Uh, in my own personal opinion, uh, he lost, you know, I guess, belief in, in Sonny Gray during this playoffs, which I thought was unwarranted. Uh, maybe he has a little something there he has to fix with, with Sonny Gray, uh, especially in Game 7. 
Tommy Canley throwing 16 out of 24 pitches for change-ups. Uh, he was clearly gassed. Joe could have used Sonny Gray to get him some length, and, and he kind of refused to use him. Uh, do you think that before they consider all of their options with the players, uh, they got to figure out what's going on with Joe in his locker room? I, and you know what? I think that's. I think it's totally fair. And from everything that we've seen, you know, maybe Joe Girardi isn't the guy that wants to come back at the end of the day, right? Uh, because he's come out in press conferences. He hasn't exactly said, this is where I want to be. He's always said, well, I'll speak with my family about it, which, listen, that's a respectable answer and everybody gets it. But that's also kind of the answer we've seen in baseball history where a guy is just unsure whether he wants to come back. That's just... That's usually what it screams if you read between the lines a little bit. So I'm sure he'd like to come back. As far as his relationships go, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really tough to tell on the outside looking in. But listen, we've seen it during Joe Girardi's tenure since he's been here. There are certain guys that he absolutely falls in love with and he's loyal to. And that's just who he is as a manager. And there are other guys that he doesn't like as much. And you see it and it's reflected in their playing time and it's reflected in trust and and, and I think, personally, I think that's been a big issue with this team. You look at, listen, if, if the Yankees don't get by Cleveland, you're still looking at that game too, right? That he, that he absolutely threw away. And it's a microcosm when Gary Sanchez is standing there saying, challenge the play, challenge the play. And Girardi doesn't want to do it because he either doesn't trust his player or he just doesn't know enough uh, on video. So, yeah, I think it's important to, to figure it out exactly what they want in a manager um, moving forward, if it is Joe, uh, or if they want to go in a different direction. But at the end of the day, if there's, I, I think, and it's just like paying some Yankee fans to say, I think Joe probably earned another contract with the Yankees just because they made it this far. And, you know, you can look at all the in-game decisions that he made and, and really criticize and chew on everything. But if the players like him and they back him, then that's all that matters, you know, media be damned kind of thing. Well, I know Matt Mike would be happy if he's gone, but I mean, when I when I really think about it, Joe Joe Girardi could have very well have earned him the Manager of the Year award with the way the Yankees played. But speaking of Jacoby Ellsbury, you know that's one contract I know the Yankees like to rid themselves of. Would do you think that that's a possibility that they'll be able to get rid of him? And also your thoughts on you know my take on Girardi possibly winning the Manager of the Year award. Joe, before you answer that, before yeah. you answer that, um, just consider this, and, and I think I've bounced this off once, once before, twice before. Um, I, I, I can see the Yankees maybe trying to push off Ellsbury and eat maybe a third, close to a half of the contract. Maybe package him with Dylan Batances, shoot him out to maybe the Chicago Cubs for Kyle Schwarber, something like that. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing with with Ellsbury, either. There's kind of two. There's kind of two thought processes here, right? It's either Ellsbury has seen his his best days are behind him, and you know what he is or what he was as a player isn't what he's worth making in his contract. Or you can look at it as the Yankees aren't really the type of team, and they weren't the type of team to manufacture runs and create havoc on the base pass and all that stuff. So his style of play would be better served on another team that kind of, you know, works aggressively like that. So, you know, I, I can see it either way. I'm sure that the Yankees would possibly be willing to eat at least a year off of his contract. You know, we're talking $22 million. And if they feel strongly about having to move one of these outfielders to really give Clint Fraser a shot as, as 
either an everyday or the fourth outfielder next year, which I think is is money. Yeah, that's money in the bank. That he's, I think Frazier's got to be on the everyday roster next year at this point. Uh, before that's another player where you're just kind of he's in limbo and you don't know what you're doing with him. But yeah, I think Ellsbury could go as far as Girardi winning Manager of the Year. I think it's a possibility. I mean, you don't want to say yes or no, but. At the same time, if you break it down month by month, the Yankees were a 500 baseball team in July and August. And even, you know, you're looking at all the young players on the team. It's not like they were exactly ravaged with injuries this year. And, and the kids did play and they played well all year. Sure, there were some there were some uh, there were some stumbles here and there. There were some slumps here and there. But, yeah, I think it's a possibility, especially when you consider there's no one else really in the American League that will that will blow you away. I mean, maybe A.J. Hinch, uh, but that team was loaded, and, and you could probably could, you know, it's no disrespect to Hinch, but you probably could have potato put a potato in a hat on the bench, and they would have managed that team to a 95 wins. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, a, it's certainly a possibility, and when you consider the, the competition for the award, it's not exactly blowing the doors off. So you have, you know, uh, the youth, you know, I've, I've been hearing Gleyber Torres' name, Brought up a lot, and you know, you were saying that the Yankees should resign Frazier, and they have Chase Headley on the contract, and they have Torres, uh, and you know, Sterling Castro and Didi. <laughs> what if if Glaber Torres comes up? Obviously, if he comes up, you got to give him a playing opportunity. So if he does come up, you know what happens. And also, I'm here. I, I I'm hearing a lot about Chase Adams. If I'm saying his name correct. Do you can you see him in a starting rotation next year for the Yankees? I think if Sabathia doesn't come back next year, I think Chance Adams will probably be that number five guy. Um, I think he's on the spot. You look at his numbers from this year. The only criticism and the reason that they were so hesitant to bring up Adams was they felt that he didn't really develop a true out pitch. But when you look at his numbers and what he was doing without a true out pitch it's beyond impressive so i'm still a little surprised they didn't give him a shot near the end of the year but with pitching you always got to think of their clocks you know when they want to start the clock when you know free agency arbitration all that stuff so if you can get by without having to call them up i understand it's it's purely a business decision at the end of the day now would you funny when we're talking about the yankees would you bring back cc and what about jordan montgomery you know, it's so it, that's you always hear that that having too much pitching is is a good problem, right? And I think CC he said it himself. He's they've got unfinished business, and he's a guy that he's meant so much to this team in the clubhouse. He's battled this year, and I said it near the beginning of the year. This, and you don't want to make light of the guy's personal demons or anything like that. But this was a year where all excuses were out the door, right? Um, it's, it was always either about the health of his knee or his weight or his alcoholism. And again, you don't want to make that an excuse because that's, it's very serious. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, the reason for his poor performance in years past before this year was, were always one of those three things. So I think he showed you what he can do, but at the same time, listen, CC's not getting any younger and you hope that he can replicate the success that he had this year by giving him another one year deal. Uh, I think they'll probably do it as far as Jordan Montgomery goes. I just think, you know, it's tough to say because Montgomery showed flashes this year of, of being a really solid big lefty. But at the same time, there were times where he really obviously struggled. He nibbles a lot, and he's not a guy that with his stuff, with what he has or what he doesn't have, 
um, he can't really be afford to miss his spots a lot. So I think, you know, you'll probably give CC another one-year deal. As far as Jordan Montgomery goes, If you that's a spring training battle to watch because Chance Adams is going to get a shot at the roster. And if the Yankees feel comfortable with maybe sending Montgomery back down, you know, use him as kind of like a, a spot starter, a six-man, I think that's probably the best option that they have. Hey, Joe, what's the likelihood that they consider trade uh, of Jordan Montgomery? Some of, they, they have a history of doing this with guys – you know, they're, they're back-end starter. They once traded Adam Warren. They once traded Sean Green, actually, how they landed uh, Dita Gregorius, as a matter of fact. And they also have other guys in the minors, uh, you know, Domingo Acevedo and Justice Sheffield, uh, who, who is a lefty, which are both at AAA as it is. And, you know, Domingo Herman, who, who didn't seem to be in the circle of trust of Joe Girardi, but uh, he had a fairly... Uh, solid triple a season this year too once a top 10 prospect in the marlin system so maybe they they try to flip jordan and and uh give some of these guys an opportunity yeah i don't think that's unfair um if you can get and here's the question it's always about what you can get right and the question is what do the yankees need if you're trying to change if you're trying to trade montgomery for for uh you know maybe some more prospects it's going to be interesting to see but you just don't want to give away a, a big young lefty starter for you know a bag of, a bag of balls right so and then we've seen the cashman is is totally capable of trading guys and then getting gems back in trades these last few years so i think it's listen anything and everything is on the table this offseason i the yankees have tons of flexibility where they can move parts and not break up the core of this team and really what and what made them great to try and improve in in, in the future and again depth is never a pro- depth is never a problem you're seeing two of the deepest teams in baseball heading to the world series right now so even if the yankees can hold on to guys and and really make it through the next year just you know out depthing guys other teams i guess is the best way to put it uh, I think that's totally on the on the table too. And uh, if Cashman doesn't want to take an unnecessary risk, then I don't think he should have to. No doubt about it, the Yankees had a, a surprising 2017 season, and hopefully they'll have a better 2018 season. As me, the Mad Mike, and Joe are looking forward to this upcoming season. The next clip that I'm going to play is another interview that we did uh, with my friend Langston Galloway uh, from the Detroit Pistons. Uh, this was pretty much a most recent interview, and we just kind of was catching up on, you know, how he was doing uh, with this new ball, ball club and how he was getting acclimated with the Detroit Pistons. So here's the second interview uh, between Lloyd A. Thompson and Mad Mike uh, with Langston Galloway of the Detroit Pistons. I got my good friend and little brother Langston Galloway from the Detroit Pistons calling in. Langston, what's going on, brother? How you feeling? What's going on, big bro? How's everything been? I'm all right, man. Hanging in there, man. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to call in for this final show for the year. So I really appreciate that. Just want to ask you a couple of questions for our listeners, you know, because obviously we always want to get to know the Langston Galloway, and you've been so gracious enough to call in and help the show out. So if that's okay with you, I'd like to get started, brother. Oh, for sure, for sure. Let's get it going. All right, now, so... You know, how has it been for you getting acclimated to your new teammates in your new uh, city uh, with the Detroit Pistons? 
It's been really good. Uh, just just taking it one game at a time and uh, just just uh, learning um, the, the the different atmosphere of being out here in Detroit compared to the last couple of cities I've been in. So, uh, like I said, just taking it one day at a time and uh, just enjoying the grind every, every single day. Now, you know, New York, you played in New York, and New York is yep. a cold city. So I'm kind of used to, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you got to be used to it because Detroit is no better. But, you know, I follow you on social media, and I've seen you put up videos of you, you know, snow falling and everything. Man, I would lose my mind out there going through all that. It seems like it's a little bit worse than New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's worse in New York when it comes to uh, the snow coming down. And uh, the other day it was crazy because we had about – 10 inches or more come down and I'm like man I'm, I actually had to ride through it because I was trying to get somewhere and I'm like man this is this is crazy because in New York I mean it come down but it, I mean it don't be it'll come down for a little bit take a break then come down you know what I mean it's not like the same like here it just comes down and then you just like you're stuck in it now New York has really great fans and you know watching you know I've been a big basketball fan for so many years and I know Detroit has a really strong fan base Right. Are, are there similarities between both fan bases or are there differences, you know, the passion between both fan bases? Can you just explain that a little bit to the listeners? Yeah, I think it's a lot of history in both organizations. And uh, I think that uh, the, the more and more uh, we continue to get back on track and continue to win, I think that uh, the, the fans will start coming out more and more to the games and uh, continue to support. I think they're always – uh, following, but they, they might not always come to the games, uh, especially out here. And uh, and we we've, we've been uh, been up and down this year, but I think uh, as we continue to uh, start rolling, I think uh, more and more fans will come out, and, and you'll, you'll see a good crowd at pretty much all the games. Now, you guys, you know, obviously Detroit has had you know some tough goings the last you know the last couple of seasons, and you're on board, and you got a really big a good big man in Andre Drummond, and some really good players in Tobias Harris and Reggie Jackson and Ed Smith, and you you know throwing you into the mix. So you guys got off to a really strong start at the beginning of the season, and you've hit a little bit of a rough patch. You know the last couple of um games, you know you got to win a big win the other night. You know it kind of fell out of the standings. What do you feel that you guys need to do to get things back on track? No, I think we just got to continue to stay, stay even kill. I mean, uh, in this league, you, you have uh, so many ups and downs. And uh, it's crazy because I, I think we have like the second toughest schedule in the whole entire NBA. So it doesn't matter what uh, I feel like anybody can throw at us uh, going forward. I think we're going to be able to be a really uh, contender or a really big contender going down the stretch because uh, I mean these first uh, what about 20 some games uh, I mean we've played the toughest games uh, out in Golden State out at Boston and then now they're coming back to us and uh, through the stretch we've had like the six or seven toughest teams come to our house and we've played them on the road as well and it's, it's been a tough stretch but uh, I, I think we're just going to continue to stay even kill and we'll be just fine Right now, you know, you're really known for being a great defensive player and you have a great offensive game to go along with that as well. And you've played against, you know, the NBA, you know, it's, it's, we have, you know, it's known for having the best players in the world. So with that being said, and you playing against so many different types of players, tell the listeners who's your toughest player to defend and why that player, you know, gives you a little bit of a, a fit when you're trying to defend them. Uh, I mean... They, like, like you said, it's, it's a lot of different uh, players I've played against in this league, and uh, it's a lot of tough guys. 
uh, that that have different moves that that try to get past guys and blow past different guys. And uh, to to me, in my opinion, um, probably one of the toughest guys in in my opinion is probably Russell Westbrook, just just because of the, uh, his his quickness and uh, and being able to. Uh, just, I mean, hey, he can take the ball from one end to the other, and, and I mean, almost three or four dribbles. So it's it's, it's kind of tough to, to defend him when he is hesitation package and, and trying to uh, uh, settle for three. So it's, it's 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 always a tough matchup when I face against him. Yeah, listen, I was watching a game where they played against Philly the other night, and he had this dunk, man. I was like, wow. You know yeah, so yeah. Russell's a little bit, you know, Russell's a beast for sure, and you played for some really good coaches. And in my opinion, you play for some so-so coaches, and that's just my opinion. Not saying that that's yeah. your opinion. Um, how has it been playing for Stan Van Gundy thus far? It's been really good, really good. I'm, uh, I have learned a lot just being able to uh, uh, take the bits and pieces that he's uh, been able to to show each and every every one of the guys on the team, and uh, and um, and just pushing us, pushing us to to get better each and every day, and uh, it really is is is. It's no lack of, uh, I guess you say, getting better uh, from from this team. Everybody on our team wants to get better, and I think that he just pushes everybody to a whole other level, and he knows that we can be great. So uh, I think that it, it really helps us uh, going forward. Now, you know, in sports, and I'm an athlete as well, you know, you have game preparations and film study and things of that nature. And, I, you know, I would like to think that basketball is no different than football where you have film studies. Now, when you when when you guys are getting prepped for a team, because obviously with the NBA you can play back to backs, you know you can play X amount of games, you know in a, in a week. Is there film preparation for players or teams that you're going up against, or is it because you play against those guys you tight you have you know their tendencies and things like that? No, no, that's always going to be preparation. Uh, you can't ever go into a game thinking, all right, I, I know exactly what's going to happen. And, and, uh, and you just pinpoint, all right, we're just going to remember what we did last game. We're going to do that. It's always, uh, the coaching staff and whatever assistant coach has that game. We're always going over film, always, uh, just watching w- what plays they, they've been running. And then, uh, and then who's hot. You have to really know who's, who's, uh, hot right now, who's off right now. Because um, I mean, hey, any any given moment in this league, you get opportunity, and uh, and a different guy might step up and and, and really have a breakout year. So uh, I think every game is different, and uh, you you have to take it like that. You have to be able to mentally lock in and say, all right, I'm a lock in on my defense, my my guy, whoever I'm guarding against, and then say, all right, well, once he's up and the new guy, yeah, hey, what does he do that that might be different from the starter? So it's, it's always like. Um, the little adjustments you have to make in literally second by second in the league. Right. So now I follow you on social media and, you know, I see you post a lot of things of you and your teammates doing things together. Now, you know, and and I I get a kick out of it and I think that's great. Now, how important is it for you guys to do things like that to build team? In in college, um, we had a lot of that uh, my senior year. And, um, I mean, just hanging out being able to uh, hang out at each other's crib, being able to go bowling, um, just I mean, going just do a, a lot of different things, and uh, and when you when you're able to to come together and and, and form that brotherhood, it's it's huge, and it, and it makes uh, everybody on the team just feel comfortable off the court, 
and then when you're on the court, I mean, it, it I mean, it does wonders, and uh, I think that uh, we continue to do that throughout the season. I think we'll be we'll be just fine. Now, how do you know? Speaking of that, how does that team camaraderie help you guys on the basketball court? Because because it's important, like you said, to build the relationship off the court. How does that help on the court? No, because you you you, uh, you take it from the aspect of uh, knowing that. All right, this this guy respects me. He understands where I'm coming from. I can say I not saying you can't say whatever to a guy, but you can uh, you can take the the good with the bad. So a guy might um, he might try to check you or try to um, uh, try to give you a spark. Always try trying to like uh, tell you something to to to, to get better from or, or something you might be messing up on that you you take that with uh, with criticism. You take the criticism and uh, and then you move forward and say all right. He's just trying to help me and get better in this situation. So uh, I think that that really helps that that out, and then you you can form a lot of leaders that way. Right, and that and that's great. And and now you know you're in the Loma St. Joe's, and again because I follow you on social media, you're always you know showing your support for those guys and things like yep. that. And you have some other guys that's in the league. I think Bembre or Bembry. I'm not you know forgive me. Yeah, Bembry. Yep. Bembry and, and Jameer, uh, right? Nelson. Yep. Nelson. Yep. So I think that's awesome that you guys have been able, you know, to make it from, from the school into the league. How does that affect, you know, players that are currently on the team for them to see you guys be successful and make it into the NBA and for you guys to go back, you know, and show your support for those guys that are currently playing? Oh, it's huge. It's huge because there's so many guys that um, have been through the program and um, and just be just to be able to to play for a coach like Phil Martelli and and the assistant coaches. I mean, it, it, it does wonders for guys' careers. And I think that uh, uh, as St. Joe's continues to progress, and I mean, I have ups ups and down years, but uh, the players that come back uh, come into the, the program, we always want to come back and show our face and uh, and just be that that little light and that uh, that little spark for them. Any, any anything they can use to to say, all right, I got to be motivated to work like him or do whatever he does. You know what I mean? To, to to try to make it to that next level, which is, I mean, everybody's dream that that gets to play this game. Now, you know, I, I you play with the Knicks, um, you know, and as a friend, I miss you being in New York, and I'm sure fans miss you being in New York. And the Knicks are actually having a pretty decent season thus far because yep. you have ties, you know, to the Knicks. You know, and is that at any point do you follow those guys during the season, you know, to keep an eye out to see how they're doing and kind of like, you know, do you is, do a part of your heart actually roots for them outside of playing against you guys? To, to be honest, uh, it's, it's been really tough. Uh, my first year out of New York, which was last year, I was really like, all right, I'm going to check those guys. I'll see who's still doing well. My, 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 all my guys are still there. Um, but but being my second room, second year removed from the team, uh, I haven't really had a chance to check them out this year. And uh, 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 but I, I do keep in contact with a couple guys on staff uh, that I'm real cool with, and uh, and it's always good when I, when I, especially when we either play New York in New York or play um, out here. So uh, it's always good just to hear those guys and then get a chance to talk to them and uh, and catch up. Right now, I see you have some things going on outside of basketball, which is great. Um, you have your, your own sneaker thing, your, your uh, LG nines. Yeah, LG kicks nines. L yeah. LG kick nines. So tell tell us about that and how listeners could get involved with that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, I got a couple a couple different uh, social media things going on right now. You got uh, on my Instagram right now, LG kicks nine. Uh, 
uh, it's blowing up right now. I got a lot of heat on, on my page, uh, and uh, just just trying to show show the, the I guess you say the world uh, a little bit about uh, my background and just just some hobby that I, I picked up over the years, and then also. Uh, it's, it's more for uh, giving back and being able to just show the fans a lot of support and, uh, and love that they've shown for me, uh, which is which is crucial. And then um, and then I just started my YouTube channel. Uh, it'd be LG Kicks TV. Uh, so I'll be doing a lot of different like uh, giveaways, uh, a lot of different um, just sneaker events that I go to go to throughout the year. Uh, so it, it, it'll be cool. I mean, I think that. Uh, people should really tune into that and uh, and, and just look, be on the lookout for it because, uh, uh, hey, maybe you have a chance to win. So, hey, check it out. Listen, I'll tell you this much. I'm, I'm a friend of his, so I know how big Langston is into his sneaker game. So, I, I'm on board for that. I've seen some of the sneakers that yeah, he put up, and those, them joints are fire, man. I'll tell you. Yeah. I'm yeah, like, you look, know, I'm like, yo, look. I need a pair of those ASAP. Right, right, right. Hey, look, hey, look. Be on the lookout for my, my kicks. I just got my own brand, uh, Q4, uh, Q4 Sports. Uh, got my own shoe coming out right now. Uh, right now, I just got my promos. They just came in, the LG, LG9s, and uh, that'll be my first edition of my kicks. And uh, hopefully when they when they uh, they drop on the page, uh, hopefully everybody go out there and buy them. So Listen, that'd be cool. I'm telling you right now, I'm, I'm already online, on page line. You know what I'm saying? If there's <laughs> such a thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm already lined up to get those because, like I said, what I've seen, you know, from what you've been, you know, showing and everything, man, just straight fire. And not only that, you know what I'm saying, being a friend, you know, I'm, you know, I'm always going to support you in your endeavors, and I want nothing but the best for you. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy and proud for you, brother. Hey, I appreciate that, big bro. I appreciate that, man. It's a blessing to always say, have my family and all my friends support me, man. So uh, I just, hey, I just give all the glory, to God. That's all. All right, awesome, man. And with that being said, I'm not going to keep you any longer, Langston, man. I just wanted to thank you so much for calling in and showing your support to the show and to me, man. I really appreciate it. As always, big bro. As right, always. Man. So hopefully, I can get you back on the show. Uh, sometime next year, you know, because this is the last show of this year. So hopefully I can get you on the show next year, you know, and so you so we can catch up and see what's going on with you and things like that as well. Oh, hey, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, awesome. Appreciate it. Guys, don't forget, write that information down. Go on, follow, and buy those kicks because they are fire. Langston, thanks a lot, brother. I really appreciate you, man. Happy holidays. Be safe and God bless. Hey, happy holidays, bro. All right, man. Take care. All right, peace. Always appreciative when Langston is able to take time out of his busy schedule to call in and join the show. Listeners, be sure to check out his sneaker line. And I also want to congratulate Langston and his wife on, you know, their new, they're expecting a new child, a new boy. Uh, so I want to congratulate Langston and uh, wish him nothing but the best. His wife is a wonderful woman. Uh, he comes from a great family, so I want to wish them, uh, I want to congratulate again, them again and blessings on an expecting child. The next interview that I'm going to play is Joe Rivera again joined us and him, myself, and Mad Mike went over our predictions for MLB awards, who we thought was going to win, who we thought was going to get shafted. Um, so here's the interview with me, with myself. Joe and the Mad Mike about our predictions for MLB awards for the 2017 season. Now, you know, obviously, you know, we have, you know, the MVP award, the Cy Young award, the Rookie of the Year award. 
for both the American League and National League uh, to be named and Gold Glove Award uh, winners as well. We just want to get your take um, on AL MVP, Rookie of the Year, and Cy Young Award, uh, who you would pick for those awards. And we'll choose our guys also and, you know, give a brief reason as to why you chose that particular player. All right, so MVP, and I've, and I've mentioned this on the show before, and I'm, I'm very open with it. It's got to be Aaron Judge. And the reason why, he's got better numbers than Jose Altuve, who's probably going to win it all around. But because of what happened with the hurricane in Houston, because of them winning the world, because of Houston winning the World Series, being as good as they were all year, that narrative just takes over. And I think if you switch Aaron Judge's first and second halves, so if he had a terrible first half, but an absolutely monster second half, people are talking about him as the MVP right now. And I, I just think when you look at his numbers, he's got a better uh, fan graphs more than Altuve does. He's got better numbers, you know, better home runs, uh, more runs scored, more RBI, all these things better than, than Altuve. But because Altuve is, is, you know, the little guy, I think his height definitely plays into it. Um, on this juggernaut of a team that he's going to end up winning it. Rookie of the year, it's going to be judged. It's not even going to be close. You're probably talking unanimous. Um, everybody was, you know, some guys were trying to get cute with Andrew Benintendi in the second half, but I just, that's not happening. I'm sorry. There's, there's, he put up historic numbers this year as a rookie or just as a regular, you know, uh, a, a veteran player. And Cy Young, it's tough. I, I mean, it's probably going to be Kluber. I think some people can make a case for Chris Sale, especially some guys that look at the entire season as a whole. I know Chris Sale, you know, he pitched well in the second half, not as good as his first half. But when you look at what Kluber did this year, um, especially the second half numbers, you know, he had a stretch where he was absolutely unbelievable. I think it's going to be him. But I think it's going to be a little bit closer than, than people, uh, people expect it to be. Now, I'm going to go, Matt, Mike, and... I'm going to agree with Joe as far as MVP, which I feel, you know, Aaron Judge should win it, although I agree with him again that I just have an odd feeling that Altuve is going to end up winning the MVP award as I really can't see baseball giving Aaron Judge, which he deservingly so, the MVP and Rookie of the Year award. And speaking of Rookie of the Year, he'll, he'll earn my Rookie of the Year award as well, and I agree also with Kluber. I think uh, Sell's performance in the playoffs is going to hurt him, even though that's not supposed to take into account, um, you know, what the regular season means. But you know, Joe, just real quick, do do voters, even though they're not supposed to, do voters actually take into account the players' performance? Those that make the playoffs, do they take that into the account as well? Or would you say they completely ignore that and just focus on the regular season, you know, their regular season performances? You know, and, and this is this is kind of the same argument that, that goes for the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, right? Where, you know, you kind of look at a guy's postseason numbers, but you can't punish a guy for not having great postseason numbers, but he's only been to the postseason twice in his career. And then there are other guys that are like, oh, well, he has great postseason numbers, but he's been there 15 times. I think at the end of the day, each voter is an individual. I know that's, you know, it's, it sounds cheesy and everybody's going to vote on their own merits. They're going to, I think there are definitely some guys that are going to look at the playoffs and be like, Oh, well, this guy clearly wasn't the MVP or the Cy Young. And other guys are going to look at the playoffs and, and, you know, they just completely ignore it and vote only on regular season uh, merits. But 
Yeah, I think everybody's different. For me personally, if, if it's a regular season award, I'm not voting for anything in the playoffs because, again, you, you can't punish a guy um, for 24 other guys not being able to help him make the playoffs. Uh, it's it's a, you know it takes a team to get there, and the same it's the same way the other way around. You can't you can't uh, really award a guy if he's a great player on a great team for making the playoffs. Uh, so it's it, it's tough, but I I wouldn't vote based on what you, what you see in the playoffs. I just don't think that's uh it's not really fair. Uh, all right, now Matt, Mike, who who are your uh, who are your players that you would vote for those same awards? Um, like you guys, I would give Aaron Judge both MVP and I'd give him the Rookie of the Year. Um, I hear the argument that, you know, he'll win one award and, and you know, we'll give it to us way and somehow justified. But I saw Derek Jeter once lose an MVP award to Rookie of the Year and MVP Ichiro. I saw him, you know... I saw it happen with Cy Young, Justin Berlander, MVP Justin Berlander. So it, it's not something that's, that uh, has never happened in the past. I'd give them both awards. Uh, historic season. I mean, he broke records, uh, Yankee records and Major League Baseball records. He deserves both. Uh, the Yankees wouldn't be in the conversation without him. That's a fact. Uh, and I think we can argue that Houston, maybe, maybe not championship caliber, but they would be uh, – probably the western uh you know the the winner in the west anyway without him uh cy young i gotta go Corey kluber i understand it's a full season award i just think that chris dale's second half was 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 much worse than his first half uh he faded he had a lot more games where you know a lot less quality starts down the stretch than Corey kluber uh indians went on a historic run Texas staff was historic and you know i think it's just all kluber at, at you know i don't even think it's going to be that close all right well hopefully we're actually accurate with our predicaments and now moving on to the national league joe who are your players uh for the awards in the national league oh man it's 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 so tough to say i, I think if you're looking at mvp um it's it's, it's toss up for me between Paul Goldschmidt and Charlie Blackman. You know, I thought if you're going to give it to a Rocky at first, it was going to be Arenado. But Arenado's second half wasn't as good as his first. Charlie Blackman just has better numbers overall. And his park-adjusted numbers are overall are much better than Arenado's are. So I think he probably wins MVP. If not him, it's definitely going to be Goldschmidt. I mean, this is this guy is, is a top-five player in baseball, no questions asked. And he gets absolutely no love because he plays in Arizona. Um, and I, I just don't think it's fair. You know, as far as Cy Young goes, it's, 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 so t- it's really tough to say. I mean, if, you, if you're looking at a guy like Keiko, but you can't really because he was hurt. Justin Verlander obviously didn't pitch enough, pitching only there for, for a month. Um, you could give it to Clayton Kershaw because that's just the default. But I, I think it's probably going to be Scherzer again. Uh, I just think he's, he's too good. He had too good of a year. He was lights out at the beginning of the year. And there's no one else in the National League that really, really stands out to me. And rookie of the year, honestly, it's it's the same thing. I, I mean, I had, I think my early, my prediction before the year was, I want to say it was Dansby Swanson, but he was no, no doubt about it. Swanson was terrible. Uh, Keon Broxton was up there. Uh, Hunter Renfro was up there. I, I don't really have a clear cut NL rookie of the year. I got to look at the numbers closer. Uh, but yeah, as far as goes, I think it's going to be Scherzer again. 
And MVP, it's it's a toss-up, but I think Blackman takes it over Goldschmidt. Now, I'm going to give a little twist to this. As my MVP award, uh, I'm actually going to uh, throw out Giancarlo Stanton's name. Um, I think, you know, his you know his home run tear the second half of the season might do enough to get him that award. And oddly enough, voters, you know, sometimes players that you think shouldn't get it, actually get it. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's between him and Goldschmidt. But uh, Goldschmidt, to me, is more deserving. But for some reason, I have a feeling uh, Giancarlo Stanton is actually going to win that award. And my Cy Young award uh, will go to Scherzer, although, you know, Kane Crenshaw, Crenshaw, if I'm saying his name correctly, um, you know, he pitched well, but Scherzer had a really good season this year. And the Nationals had a really good overall regular season. They continue to craft the bed in the playoffs. And uh, my Rookie of the Year award, um, Joe, help me out. And I don't know if he's actually a rookie. The kid from the Dodgers? Yeah, Bellinger. You know, Bellinger's going to win it. But again, Bellinger had a very, very good first half. And the second half was not as good, especially when you consider how much he, he slowed down in the second half. And I think Bell. And I think one quick thing on Bellinger. I think you look at defensively how good he is. Um, not just at first base, but out in left field too. I mean, they were sticking him out in left, and he played really well. But again, it's. I think it's him. But it's not like he had this like historic season where where he's like a no doubt slam dunk guy. Especially when you look at some other numbers that these guys have. Yeah, it was just that you know his name was continuously brought up. Over and over again, you know, and it seems like the golden child. So, you know, again, I just have this odd thing with voters and, you know, how they go about voting for, you know, who earns or wins these awards. And I just have a feeling that he's going to win it, you know, despite the facts that you just brought up. Yeah, I don't think it's unfair. I mean, he'll probably win it, but he, again, and it might be unfair because of where he plays and, you know, with the Dodgers and all that, but. It's looking at the way he burst on the scene. I get all that, but again, his second half wasn't that great, and maybe it's unfair. But looking at his playoffs, he just didn't make the adjustments, and you don't want to call him a one-trick pony because he definitely wasn't. But there were some question marks there um, in the second half. But yeah, I think he does win it. But again, when you look at his numbers as compared to some other guys, he wasn't like this absolutely, you know, drop dead Aaron Judge type campaign, and maybe that's unfair, but. That's just the way it shook out. All right. Now, Matt, Mike, who do you have? Uh, I think the MVP is Charlie Blackman, no question. I don't think it's going to be close at all. Uh, guy led the league in uh, batting average, hits. He was third in home runs. Um, runs scored, and it wasn't, you know, by, by a pretty significant lead over uh, Stanton. Uh, I think it's his. I, I think what hurts him in the voters' eyes, uh, and, and maybe I'm off on it, but I just think people look at him as, as – you know, a leadoff hitter, so it hurts his, his value. But this guy uh, did everything you'd want a leadoff hitter to do, and then he did everything you'd want a number three, you, you know, a number three hitter in the lineup to do. So, it, to me, no question, uh, it's him. Uh, as far as uh, Cy Young goes, I'll give it to Max Scherzer. I just think that uh, I think that Kershaw's injury history, you know, catches up to him again. I just think he misses too many starts to uh, beat out Max Scherzer. And as far as Rookie of the Year goes, I think uh, because the Dodgers had such a historic season and I think because there was, you know, 
not as much competition in the NL for him. It, it's, it goes to Cody Bellinger. Um, uh, his second half, Joe's right. He didn't make adjustments. He did strike out a ton. I don't think he's going to be able to avoid that because, uh, you know, it, it, his swing is, you know, his launch rates is everything. It just, it seems to me that, uh, He's looking more to uh, pull the ball. He's looking more to, you know, hit fly balls, home runs. So we'll see. Uh, that's a, you know, a topic for another day. Uh, those would be my three uh, award winners. In the end, listeners, I think I had the most uh, picks correct. I might have had all of them picked correctly. Uh, but if not, I think I had more of those other guys. So I'll take the more victory on that one. The next clip I'm going to play is a debate that me and the man Mike had about which New York Nick? I'm sorry, not which New York Nick team, but which New York teams treat their players the worst? I said the Knicks treated their players, and I think they treat their players terribly. Uh, the Mad Mike seemed to not have thought so. He also thought that Marcus Cami was a great Nick, and I disagree with him on that. So here's the clip with me and the Mad Mike debating over Marcus Camby being a great Nick and who I thought was a great Nick and how the Knicks treated their players and how New York teams treat their players. So here we go. Listen to this clip right now, guys. Not for nothing, Matt, Mike. That just goes to show how bad Melo really wanted to get out of New York. If he added more teams to that list and even a team that if he was to go to it, it, would, it wouldn't really make that much sense for him to go to it. You know what I'm saying? He chose to go there. That just goes to show... That he didn't want to be there. And like I was saying before, the Knicks had to get this deal done before Melo turned into a pumpkin and became a crybaby and a, bi a crybaby and a big headache. So they did just that. Again, I, you know, I hate to see Melo go. I wish he would have stayed in the long run and finished his career as a Nick. But we know as Nick fans that that doesn't happen that often. That Nick players ride off into the sunset and finish their career as Nick players. And some of the Nick greats have been traded towards the tail end of their career. And that's very shameful. Very shameful. No, that's smart business, man. Let, let, let's be honest. You, know, well, you, can't, you, can't, you can't say the Knicks are shameful and while, while we, we all of us in the media and all of us as fans praise Bill Belichick. One reason Bill Belichick stays on top is because his loyalty is to, to, to the team. His loyalty isn't to, to the superstars. He, if Melo wanted to stay... Melo would reject every single trade. And if right, Melo what, cared what, about a let championship... Me, let me combat you on that right there. One team that does it the correct way is the New York Yankees. The New York Yankees, Bernie Williams finishes his, he finished his career as a Yankee. Derek Jeter finished his career as a Yankee. And there have been several other players. Posada, there's been several other players that towards the tail end of their contract, the Yankees let it be known that, hey... We want you to finish your career as a Yankee, but we also want to go in a different direction. And here's some other things that we could present to you that we'll put on the table that we can make this look and, and go the correct way. The Knicks, come on, man. They traded Patrick Ewing like he was nothing, no, like he did nothing for that organization. They did the same yeah, to but, Clyde Frazier. But, they did the same thing to but, Earl of Pearl Monroe. You know what no, I mean? No, but you're, you're, here's where you're wrong. Here, no, no, no. Here's where you're wrong, though. You can't just say that about the Yankees and not give the fans context. These players realize at the tail end of their careers that they didn't want to keep playing. It wasn't worth playing for another team. Everybody you named for the Knicks, they weren't ready to call it a career. Jorge Posada said, no, 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 don't it's twist different. it. Jorge Posada was no going to leave for the Mets. Bernie Williams was going to leave for the Red Sox. Derek Jeter 
is the only one who said who 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 didn't entertain any offers from other teams. Like, that's what I'm saying. We 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 have we can't pick and choose. It's different, it's different last when you year be as traded as compared to when you have an option to leave. Those players had a had they had the choice to leave if they chose to do so. Patrick Ewan didn't have a choice to leave. It wasn't like he was like, I'm in the final year of my contract as a Nick and I want to go play with the Seattle Supersonics. Clyde Fraser didn't have the choice to leave. He wasn't in the last year's contract and he didn't say, I want to go play for the Milwaukee Bucks or whatever the case may be. They got rid of him. They got rid of Earl of Pearl Monroe. So I get what you're saying, but at the same time, it's a difference when you have the choice to leave as a player as compared to a team saying, you know what? Get out of here. We don't want you no more. That's a big difference, Matt Mike. Yeah, well, it, 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 you know what? Pat Ewan played an, an extra year in Seattle, right? He wasn't ready to leave. That's what I'm saying. These guys knew they were ready to leave, and they, they, they were going to hang it up. It wasn't worth spending Matt the last Mike, you're couple missing years. the point of me saying that he was No, you're traded. saying you're saying that the Knicks, you're saying the Knicks traded him. They traded but if, him. If so he would have been like, if, if he, he would have said, this is my final year, I'm going to retire as a Knicks, he would have never been traded. He made it clear that that he he was not going to retire, meaning Pat Ewing. And not for nothing, once again, why do we celebrate Bill Belichick? And we, we can't have it both ways. If, if I don't celebrate Bill Munger, Belichick because I hate New England. I don't like anything about New England, so there's nothing to celebrate about Bill Belichick. I mean, as a they they may do the things the right way, but I don't give a crap about New England. I could care less wrong. about Bill Belichick, and I could care less about the Patriots. You know, and with that being said, I just think me as a person and me being a New Yorker for the amount of years that I lived here, I just think that they could have handled some players within teams that have played that have played for teams and New York franchises a little bit better than what they've done. And to me, the Knicks have been the worst franchises of committing crimes, of doing players that have given them so much the wrong way. Look at damn Charles Oakley. He's suing James Dolan for what they did to him. So, I mean, you don't hear that. With other New York organizations, is only with the Knicks. Yeah, but you don't hear guys like from other organizations continuously taking shots at the New York Knicks because they're still upset they were traded to Toronto for Marcus Camby, and that's exactly what I'm trying to explain to you. Who, who in their right mind wouldn't trade Charles Oakley at the end of his career for Marcus Camby? That, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. You, you need to sometimes cut off your loyalty to somebody, and when, when the perfect trade presents itself. And hey, hey, that's all I'm saying. Hey, anybody want to have revisionist history? Marcus Camby turned out to be a great Nick himself. I don't know about a great Nick. He turned out to be, I mean, he helped him get to the, I don't know about a great Nick. I don't you know kidding about me? Marcus Camby was the heart and soul uh, along with Allen Houston and, 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 and Latrell Sprewell for years. I think we're going to agree to the point disagree. where New York, New York was heartbroken when they decided to trade Marcus Camby and, and Nene for freaking well, Antonio you know McDice. When I think of great Nicks, I think of Bernard King, I think of Patrick Ewan, I think of Clyde Frazier, I think of Willis Reed, I think of Earl of Pearl Monroe. Those are great Knicks to me. Marcus Camby is not a great Nick. He might be in that next tier of players after great Knicks, but he's not a great Nick. Those those players that I named are great Knicks. Marcus Camby may have been a hard no, no, no. team. The players you the players you named were all-time great NBA players. They were great Knicks. They so played for the you, Knicks. They listen, were great Knicks. When they were when they wore that Knicks uniform, they were great Knicks. They were great Knicks. So, so I'll tell you this. So Carmelo Anthony was a great Knicks. Is his number retired in the Raptors? Car Carmelo Anthony didn't on? win here. Carmelo Anthony didn't win here. He didn't play defense. He he saw what two one one playoff series past the first round. He wasn't a great Nick. 
I well, didn't say, I, I didn't say, well, I mean, he also scored 10,000 points as a Nick. I didn't name yeah, Carmelo. Because, I didn't but, name Carmelo. I did not name you know, Carmelo Anthony. He's a great Nick. I didn't name him as a great Nick. The players that I, the names that I rang off, Carmelo Anthony's name was not in there. His name was not. But is that not? Well, is that not why you're making the comparison? You're, you're, you're what I'm saying. All are, I'm saying are you not is comparing the Melo trade to? When you say great Nick, Marcus Camby does not cross my mind. When I think of great Knicks, I think of the players that I name. I don't think Marcus Camby was a great Nick. His number is not retired in the Raptors. I don't know if his number will ever be retired in the Raptors. He didn't even play in the organization long enough. The year yeah, but, he was but, here, he was productive. But you're, you're, but, but you're, you're talking about the, the treatment of, of Charles Oakley. I mean, not for nothing, but I go, go, up the go compare. Of Charles Oakley. I bought but, it but up. I'm, and I'm giving some context to who he got traded for and how it was a smart move. Since when is it a bad move to trade a, a guy on his, his final years of, of his career for the former number two overall pick? Okay, but, but, but I'm also saying that you're also going to do that to a, a player that gave his heart and soul and he's going to come into the garden. You're going to take him away in handcuffs and embarrass him like that? That's the one good thing about this show is that me and the Mad Mike have our own opinions and sometimes we're going to agree and sometimes we're going to disagree. And I think that's great for you guys, the listeners, when we don't always agree on things and we have debates, it's healthy for the show and it's healthy for you guys. And, it, you know, it, it adds more spice to the whole situation and to the whole show. So, you know, hopefully I hate to disagree with Mad Mike and I'm sure that Mad Mike hates to disagree with me. But it happens, and when it happens, he gives his points of view, and I give my points of view, and at the end of the day, there's nothing but love between the both of us. Uh, the next interview I'm going to play is a very short interview that I have with my good friend Trey Gilda, who played with the Memphis Grizzlies for a short stint, and he's had more success playing overseas uh, in Europe and DR and things like that. So here's a real short interview between me and my good friend, Trey Gilder III. Welcome back to the Lloyd A. Thompson and Mad Mike Sports Talk Show. I have another special guest calling in today, listeners. He's my good friend Trey Gilder, another professional basketball player that has seen time in the NBA, and now he's currently playing overseas. Hey, Trey, what's going on, brother? Thank you for joining the show. How you feeling? I'm good, man. I'm all right, hanging in there. So you played college basketball at, Mc at McNeese State, and uh, you played at a junior college in Northwestern State. Did you get drafted um, out of college into the NBA? No, I went to uh, no, I was uh, went to the D League my first year. I got drafted to the D League, and, and then got, okay, I'm sorry, and you got drafted by the Memphis Grizzlies. No, I got drafted by a Colorado team in the D League that's no longer there. And then after that, uh, they signed the Memphis Grizzlies signed me as a free agent. And now, how was that experience with the Memphis Grizzlies? Uh, Memphis experience was great. It was a lot of you know learning experience. I had a lot of older players like that uh, that I got to play with that I always looked up to, like Allen Iverson, you know Zach Randolph, Rudy Gay. Uh, oh, so it, it was a great experience. Yeah, that must have been awesome. How was it with those guys? It was great, you know. We learned a lot from them. They taught me some things, you know, practice habits, daily things to do. It was just, it was fun, good experience. Now you've played, you you've had a successful career playing overseas, uh, in the Venezuelan league. Um, how fun has that been for you? Uh, Venezuela has been been great, you know. Um, it's uh, a lot of people think you know it's scary and stuff, to, but um, 
I had a lot of fun there and playing has been a great experience. They always treated me like like family. It's been great, you know. Uh, the league is tough. It's hard. as a lot of NBA players and things that come through that league. So it's been a great experience. Now, you recently played in the Dominican Republic, and uh, I was looking up something on social media where they say, you, you know, where you've uh, won the Player of the Week award several times, and you actually had one game where you dropped 45 points and went five from five from the three-point line, and uh, you actually won a championship over there. Um, how's the fan base over there in DR? The fan base is, is, is great, you know. Uh, the team I was on, the particular team that I was on, like treated me like a family since the day I was there. And, you know, they, they, they showed me, you know, a lot of love. and The fans showed a lot of love, and, and it was a great, very great. Now, you also play uh, for the Westchester Knicks. Um, how does that go about? Did your agent set you up with the Westchester Knicks? And how was your time uh, with the Westchester Knicks? Yeah, it was something my agent had worse to deal because I decided to play in the D-League. I was sitting at home, and I was going between going overseas and giving a shot at the NBA. And uh, my agent worked out a deal. To, I can go to Westchester. And Westchester, it was, uh, it was another learning experience because all the things didn't go the way I thought they would go with, uh, like, you know, the coaching situation and different things. But, you know, you learn a lot about yourself in those type of times. And But but besides that, the organization itself was pretty good. It was great. It was, like, the best uh, organization I've been with in the D-League as far as living and as far as how they treat you and practice and all those things. All right. Now, so... <laughs> What does your what does your off season workout consist of? You know we're good friends and we talk quite a bit, and uh, you know you've explained to me pretty much what your off season is. But I just want you to explain to my listeners what your off season workout consists of to get yourself, but you know, to get yourself prepared, your mind right, your body right for an upcoming season. Okay, yeah, in my off seasons, I usually. I go three or four times a day. I try to get up early and I work out with a trainer early, uh, like weights. And then um, after that workout, I go to do like a shooting or something with a trainer, like on-court stuff. And then after that, you know, I, I like maybe get a lunch. And in the afternoon, I go back and do some things on my own if, if as far as cardio or some more shooting with the gun. I just like, you know, all season I go hard. You know, I try to try to work out a lot every day. Now, I know you're a hard worker and you're dedicated to your craft, and it's paid off for you. Now, you play in the Venezuelan League and also in the, uh, you know, for the DR League. Now, both of those seasons don't interfere with each other, so is it that you play in the Venezuelan League and then when that's over, you play in the DR League? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, when you, they don't interfere, so when one is over, the other one's kind of starting, and, you know, they, they talk to my agent and try to bring me over. Now, what are your plans for this upcoming season? Are you going to play again for the winners, you know, Venezuelan League? Are the contracts year to year, or do you sign multi-year deals? How does that work uh, with, I mean, with with those types of teams as compared to NBA teams? I mean, those types of teams you can sign multi-year contracts, but sometimes it's better to keep it open, like because if you have a great year, you're gonna have to get paid more the next year. So um, right now, I'm still trying to determine because I just. Uh, got back from the Dominican Republic, so I'm just trying to determine where I want to go next and let my agent decide, uh, and then we come to, uh, you know, understanding of which one's better or a better fit for me. Okay, now, which which one did you enjoy? Which one 
um, do you think might be a better fit for you for your style of play? Because I'm assuming the style of play is different from, you know, the DR to the Venezuelan league. Uh, you know, which one suits your style and which one would you say is a bit more competitive or are they both the same? I feel like they're both the same because it's South America. So it's going to be both the same. It's, it's, it's a little different in Europe. It's a little more physical. So it's going to be, yeah, it's both the same. It's both basically the same. It's, it's a lot of physicality in the game and stuff. But, and, but I'm able to excel at both of those pretty well. Now, I would say you're pretty much, um, you know, a, a big man. You're What are you, 6'8", six, 6'9"? Six, yeah, 6'9". And for you, you know, I've seen you play before while you was with the Westchester Knicks. And, you know, you, you have the, you know, the ball handling skills of a point guard, but you have the size, you know, of a bigger guy. So, I'm you know, I'm assuming that you give a lot of players matchup problems with your side and speed and your ability to shoot the ball and dribble and create shots and also drive to the basket and, and you know, and, and dunk the ball. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of mismatches because I play like the two and the three mostly, but I'm taller, so it's hard for like a, a smaller guard to guard me that I can post him up or, you know, still be able to go bomb. So, yeah, I had a lot of mismatch problems, but, you know, that's all you work on things, so you may be able to do things that, you know, people wouldn't expect you to do if now, that's when you're taller. Now, I also know quite a other, you know, a few other guys that you've played with, you know, in the NBA uh, D League and stuff. Are any of those guys that you get to play against any of those guys or with any of those guys in the leagues that you're in? Um, I played against a few like ex NBA players and things over there. Uh, yeah, I played against a few. I haven't really played with any of them, but I played against them from time to time. Like this year, I played against uh, Nate Robinson was on the opposite team that we where we had a rivalry against. So got to play against him and a few other ex NBA players from time to time. Now, before I let you go, I got one last question that I want to ask you. Now, I want to ask you, what's the biggest difference between playing ball in the NBA and playing ball overseas? Now, you know, the NBA, obviously, you know, it's the best league in the world. And, you know, it quote unquote has the best players in the world. And, you know, a lot of players that play in the NBA or that have played in the NBA, they continue their career overseas. So I'm pretty sure that's quite competitive as well. But in your experience, what's the difference between the NBA and playing overseas? Is there a big difference or what? I mean, a few differences that like as for uh, the competition level in the NBA obviously is the best. So without saying that, obviously it would be like as not, you know, um, you traveling so much overseas is different in America. You know, you can always see your family, you close to everybody, you used to everything when you're overseas, like just you by yourself. You know, it's different cultures, and that takes a lot of getting used to sometimes. And and then it's just um, overseas. Of course, you practice two a days in the you know in the NBA. It's just once, you know, and they have a lot, and they have a lot more games in the NBA. Right now, with your success overseas, uh, overseas, um, would that be a place where you would be more comfortable being at, or if you got another opportunity to play in the NBA, would you jump on that opportunity uh, to play in the NBA? Yeah, I would jump on the opportunity, of course. You know, that's that's the dream to always want to play at home, you know, and have your mom and your family be able to see you in person as far as traveling overseas is a little hard for that. But definitely I would want to play in the NBA because, you know, you get more exposure and you get on TV and just different things, and that's just the dream. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your boy, and I'm a big fan, and I'm always pulling for you. You know, like I said, I know you work hard, and I'm very happy for the success. <laughs> that you've had playing ball overseas. 
And, um, you know, I just want to thank you for calling in and taking a couple of questions and answering the questions for our listeners. So I really appreciate you doing that for me, uh, little brother. Yeah, man, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right, man, I appreciate it. Hopefully I can get you on this show again, um, you know, in the new year. And uh, until then, man, best of luck for you. Uh, and keep me posting and have a happy holiday, brother. All right, you too. Thanks, bro. Merry Christmas and have a holiday. See you too. All right, man. Take care, brother. The last clip that I'm going to play is the interview that we had with our good friend Joe Rivera, columnist from the Sporting News, about the acquisition of Giancarlo Stanton that the Yankees traded Sterling Castro and uh, some prospects to the Miami Marlins for Giancarlo Stanton, who had won the NL MVP award. And this acquisition, in my opinion, is going to make the Yankees a formidable team in the 2018 season. Granted, this doesn't mean or guarantee that they'll win a World Series, but they'll definitely be a better team than they were last year and the favorites to win the AL East Division in Major League Baseball. So here's our interview with Joe Rivera, sports columnist from the Sporting News, about the acquisition of Giancarlo Stanton, newest Yankee. Hey, Joe, what's going on, brother? How you feeling? Lloyd, how's it going, man? Matt Mike, how you doing? How you doing? Hey, man. good. I'm blessed, man. And and I, I'm blessed and I'm happy right now. So on Saturday, you know, Jen Carlos Stanton evoked his no-trade clause to, to block deals on separate occasions from the Giants and Cardinals. And the New York Yankees swooped in to acquire the reigning NL MVP, Joe. And the Marlins, you know, they, they star at what could be considered a charitable uh, bargain price where all the Yankees had to do was send Sterling Castro and two second-tier prospects, Jorge Guzman and Jose Devers. What's your thoughts on the trade, Joe? You know, it's it's hard to say that it's a robbery involved when there's uh, – it's a robbery when there's $260 million involved. But you look at the deal, you look what the Yankees gave up, you look at what the Marlins are throwing in with the 30 mil, uh, you know, the Yankees got a, it's a hell of a deal. And, you know, when you look at it, Giancarlo Stan never had, uh, sorry, the Marlins never had any leverage because Giancarlo Stan knew how to, he knew how to maneuver with his, with his no trade clause from, from the start. He knew what he wanted. He had all the cards, he had all the power. So I think it's a great deal for both, both teams. Uh, the Marlins get what they want and they wanted to get out from underneath that contract. And the Yankees got a, a deal that fell on their lap, and they had to give up close to nothing for it. So it it's, it's really works out for both sides. Hey, hey, Joe, from, from I understand that, that uh, the, I guess the perception of this trade is that, you know, Derek Jeter hooked up the Yankees. But I'm, I'm looking at this trade, and I'm saying he was kind of forced into this. But, like, as you said, you know, Giancarlo Stanton had all the leverage. He's kind of forced into it. Uh, do you think that maybe the Yankees uh, gave, a, you know, do, do you think the Marlins, rather, got a little more than we want to give them credit for and uh, Jorge Guzman and, and uh, you know, Devers, uh, Jose Devers? You know, the thing with prospects, it's prospects are suspects until they make it, right? So... Even if they're good, if they're good on paper, if they're highly touted, they're still a ways away. Um, I think you look at what John Carlo did, and he should win Executive of the Year for the way the team maneuvered that no trade clause. He, he he didn't want to give the Marlins anything, and let's be honest, the Marlins disrespected him in the entire process, right? 
Um, you know that they wanted to cut down payroll, but if they were to seem less desperate, at least now in the media, to cut payroll, and and I don't know if this is just you know Derek Jeter trying to figure out his way as an owner, or if they're just being brutally honest with what they are as a franchise, that the fact that they came out as desperate as they did, teams knew that, and John Carlos Stanton knew that, so he wasn't going to give them anything, and he rather than feel respected and, and try and help the team out and go to another team that had a better deal uh, like the Cardinals or like uh, the Giants. Now, uh, I know, I'm sure that he felt a little jolted by it. Now, I know, you know, he also mentioned that the, the teams that he will waive his no-trade clause who was Houston was one team, the Yankees, and the Dodgers. Now, do you think once he kind of blocked the San Francisco and St. Louis deal that something might have been going on? where somebody reached out to the Yankees and was like, hey, you know, we can make this happen, and that's how the deal went forward? you think something like that may have been going underneath, you know, under the scenes or under the table? You know, it, the way that the whole process shook out, um, the Marlins wanted the best deal, uh, and they had better deals from all reports. Uh, they had better deals from the Giants, and they had better deals from the Cardinals than they did the Yankees. The Dodgers never wanted to kick in the money. And I don't think there's any, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, Twitter conspiracy theorists that say uh, there's collusion here. There's no collusion. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton, he vetoed two trades to two teams. By all, all reports said that he vetoed two trades. So the ball was in his court from the start. He knew where he wanted to go. Uh, if he wanted to go to the Cubs, one of the four teams, or Houston, or L.A., L.A. wouldn't pony up the money. Uh, they wouldn't take on the contract. And at the end of the day, the deal kind of fell in the Yankees' laps. And Cashman knew how to, how to twist the arm a little bit of ownership in Miami and that front office and, and knew how to, how to really stick it to them. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't really think there was anything under the table happening. I just think that all the business that happened was it's just common sense kind of stuff, especially coming from Giancarlo. And, and let's be honest, he was never in a million years going to accept a trade to St. Louis. This kid's a California kid. He loves the spotlight. He loves, you know, he's he's very uh, he's very outgoing. He's he's built for a big market. He was, no pun intended, a big fish in a small pond in Miami. And I just think he knew what he wanted, and, and it worked out for him, and it worked out for the Marlins. They get rid of that contract. So I think everything, what you see is what you got. Hey, now, Joe, for me personally, the most impressive uh, part of this trade is not necessarily that the Yankees got him for nothing but the money. It's more to me that the Yankees... It was finally you saw Brian Cashman's forward thinking, or at least, you know, in my my opinion. You know, he looks in the market two years from now where Bryce Harper is, is talking about 10 years, $400 million, $40 million annually. Uh, you're, you're talking about Manny Machado who's looking for 10 years, $350 million, $35 million annually. And he he got the Marlins to kick in exactly $30, you know, $30 million to drive the annual average for, for Stanton down to $22 million for luxury tax purposes. Most people don't understand how that works with, you know, the, the initial extension being added on to, you know, the extension being added on to his initial contract uh, where the Marlins were only hit with, what, $25 million or so against the cap. Could you explain to the listeners how that worked out? Uh <laughs> Stanton, the, the way that average annual value works out against the luxury, the, the way the contracts work out against luxury taxes, you take the average annual value. Um, it's not as much as how, however much they're making on 
per year. So if you look at Stanton's contract, it's very, very backloaded. I want to say he's actually making around 35 or $36 million late in his deal. Um, but that doesn't matter now. He's owed $295 million on the base contract from now until 2027. And then you take that $30 million off the top plus whatever Cashier was making and. At the end of the day, uh, you you do some math, you do the numbers, and the Yankees are still under the luxury tax. And if you look at their commitments heading into 2018, I think they're about, with this contract now, they're still about, I want to say, 25 or $30 million underneath that 197 mark. So um, it's 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 really just brilliant moves by Cashman to, to, get, to get the Marlins to kick in that money. It's just it's smart business. Um, he didn't give an inch. And the fact that you're getting a player of Stan's caliber and make no mistake, this guy, when he's healthy, which is a big question mark, when he's healthy, he's a top 10 player in baseball. His power is almost unrivaled. He's a great defensive right fielder. He can hit for average. You know, he's got a, I want to say a 275, 280 career average. So he can hit. He's not, excuse me, he's not a one trick pony. So He's a, it's, it's just an all around great deal for Cashman, for the Yankees. And, and this is what, you know, as a side point, this is what great teams do and, and great front offices. They make the best move that they think they can make for the team. And this is across all sports and they worry about the details later. So what if Stan's a right fielder? Um, you make that move now and you worry about the rest later. And that's exactly what the Yankees did. And it, uh, especially when you look at the books and the money that, that Stan's owed, it's just smart business. Now the Yankees made it clear that they intended to get under the 197 million uh, dollar tax luxury threshold in 2018, Joe. Now this will reset their tax rate. You know the club is currently taxing about you know the maximum 50 percent, and it'll save them a few. So you know according you know acquiring the largest contract in the sport, standing is three years into his record 13 uh, 13 year 325 million dollar contract. Now, that doesn't seem the job, you know, with the plan to get under the luxury tax, as we said with the Yankees. But given the team's payroll situation, the Yankees can not only afford to pay Stanton, as you guys were saying, but they also still have room to sign another player or two. So you think the Yankees, and I'm hearing CeCe Sabathia's name, do you think the Yankees might go for Alex Cobb or someone along those lines, or they might make a trade, being that they have five outfielders currently? I think you're not seeing the Yankees done yet, and I think it's it's going to be. And one more side note on Stan's contract before I continue: that thirty million dollars that uh, the Marlins are paying him only kicks in if he doesn't opt out after 2020 when he has a player opt out. I don't foresee him opting out, especially with the money he's making at the back end of that contract. But back to your question, Lloyd, I, I think you're going to see a lot of moves happen, um, and you're going to see a lot of moves happen quick. And I'm talking within like a week or two. Uh, you know, Ellsbury is the big name right now. Um, if he can be moved, the Yankees would have to pay a little bit off the top uh, <clears throat> to, to move his deal because he's still owed $22 million. Aside from that, I, the Yankees have been in, t- in touch with, uh, with CC Sabathia. Um, the process is ongoing. It, it seems like a foregone conclusion at this point that he's going to come back. So if you, if you sign Sabathia, you're looking at a one through four of uh, Severino, Tanaka, Gray, Sabathia, and whoever your five is going to be now. You could probably package a guy like Ellsbury with maybe a Jordan Montgomery if a team wants to bite, and then you give that fifth spot to one of your young starters who you think is ready, maybe a guy like Chance Adams. Or um, 
you can move a headley and you'll open up that spot at third base and then you can bring Todd Frazier back who I've said on this podcast before, I just think it's crucial for the team to bring him back. He's that veteran presence, he brings energy and he just does so much for that clubhouse. And I've been in there and I was in there during the playoffs and I see how much he means to that team and how good he is with the media and with a young team that's really important. So they have a lot of they have a lot of moves they can make. There's a lot of work still to be done if they want to shed more money. And they're going to have a few dollars to spend, um, especially with the winter meetings going on now, starting today and Sunday. Uh, things are going to happen. They're going to happen quick. You're going to see a lot of similarities to that 2008 offseason heading into the 2009 season when Cashman made one deal and then they just kept rolling in. So I think you're going to see that and it's going to happen soon. Hey, hey, Joe, uh, I'm assuming with this trade for uh, Stan, uh, for the most part, Brian Cashman is saying, We've arrived. You know, we're, we're, we're done with the rebuilding and retooling. Uh, naturally, they still have moves to make. Uh, I've heard Garrett Cole's name brought up. I, I believe, you know, uh, maybe Clint Frazier straight up for him. I hope they don't do that. But I, I know you put out a tweet, uh, I believe it was on Saturday, uh, where you kind of uh, compared the Yankees' rebuilds, retooling with the Houston Nationals' rebuilds, retooling, and you caught a little flat. Because you you, you 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 were still more impressed by Houston's rebuilding, um, not taking anything away from the Yankees, and I do I do uh, actually agree with you that Houston's what was much more impressive. Uh, would you mind giving our listeners a, a you know a little details or, or behind your thought process why you feel that way? Yeah, I still have uh, guys with with uh, torches and pitchforks outside my front door. Um, angry Yankee fans with that tweet. I don't understand. Listen. Um, when you look at what Houston did, they had three straight seasons of losing over 100 games. And I understand that you get top draft picks, but you still have to do something with those draft picks. You have to pick the right guys. You have to you have to nurture them. You have to make sure that they come into their own. Now, they missed on three of their first-round draft picks in the last seven years, right? I'm not going to include or their last six years. I'm not going to include this year because it's still too early. They missed on Delano DeShields, who's now playing with the Rangers. They missed on Brady Aiken, um, who had injury issues. And they missed on Mark Appel, who they traded for Ken Giles, I believe, to the Phillies. So those are three guys that they missed on. And Aiken and 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 um, Appel were both number one overall picks. Um, listen, at the end of the day, when you burn when you burn the whole thing to the ground and you start from square one and you as a franchise, you show the restraint, you put everything that you have into um, everything you have into scouting, into development with your players to build a core like Houston did. And even though they had the money to spend, they didn't spend it. They didn't get locked into big contracts. They didn't do any of these things that would put them in a hole or, or set them back at all. They endured the suffering. They built their guys up. Springer, Correa, obviously. And Altuve wasn't drafted, okay? Let's not forget that. Uh, Altuve was an amateur, an international amateur free agent that they signed. Um, so these, and Bregman was a first round pick too. So these guys obviously arrived in a big way. Now, uh, if you look at it from the Yankee side, obviously they didn't have to endure the suffering, but that's because the Yankees spent and spent. And when it was time for them to start making moves, they had reasonable contracts they they could move to replenish their farm system. Obviously, there were guys that they um, built through the farm system and, and Judge and, and Sanchez and these guys. But, you know, the Frasers of the world come from other organizations. And 
the Yankees, while it's, and I said this, it's mind-boggling to see how Brian Cashman and, and they completely upended their organization top to bottom with their farm system, and now they're in a position to challenge for a World Series. It's just when you're building everything from scratch and you look at it from the bottom up, you have to have a lot of things go right and go your way so you can win, which is why it makes, to me, Houston's build more impressive than what the Yankees did. I definitely agree with you on that as well. Now, you know, the Yankees, they have a fairly large arbitration class this offseason, Joe. They have eight players, to be exact, including several important members of the team. Now, these guys haven't signed their 2018 contracts, and I'm hearing reports that that'll happen at some point in January, most likely. But those contracts also have to be budgeted into the 2018 payroll. Now, the players that are for arbitration are Didi Gregorius. Sonny Gray, Dellen Batances, Adam Warren, Aaron Hicks, Tommy Canley, uh, Austin Roman, and Chasen Shreve. So all for those names that I listed, I can see the majority of those guys get, probably getting a decent increase. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, you know, aside from a guy like Shreve, uh, a lot of those guys are going to get paid. Gregorius is going to get paid. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of deals done before we head to court to arbitration. Um I think I was looking at contracts on baseball reference and uh, spotrack.com uh, great resources. And I want to say that their estimation for arbitration players heading into the season is going to be around 25 to $30 million. Um, and those are including guys that are entering arbitration and guys that are already under. So you're going to see, yeah, these guys are going to make a, a pretty penny more, but at the end of the day, arbitration is a really ugly process. Usually it goes the way of the front offices and the owners. Usually these guys don't make a lot of money. Look at what happened with Dylan Batances this past season and Randy Levine and how ugly that got. Um, it's an unfair process, which is why I think now, heading into the season, I don't think the Yankees want any bad blood with their players. You heard it in Aaron Boone's press conference. He wants to build relationships, and I think that's that's the direction they're going to go. And arbitration is an ugly process, especially with young players. They don't want the, – the players don't want to – the front office doesn't want to ruin relationships with players and, and the other way around. So these guys are going to get paid um, not as much. Uh, like Again, like a guy like Shreve, he probably won't be making that much. Um, Kaylee's going to get a nice increased DD, obviously, but I don't think it's going to break the bank. Uh, I don't think it's going to break the bank. Now, speaking, yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. I was going to say, re remember one other thing about arbitration. You, you, you can offer numbers out, you know, from both sides. The Yankees don't necessarily have to retain the rights to some of these guys. Like, if Austin Romine is looking for $2 million, and you think Kyle Higashioka in the minor leagues can give you, you know, at least close to what the, the uh, you, you know, Austin Romine is going to give you as a backup catcher, you release him and you call this kid up for $500,000. So you save, you know, a million and a half right there. So, uh, I, I, I don't, um, I don't say that that uh, arbitration is something that they don't have to worry about. Obviously, it is. But when some of these lesser guys, if their numbers come in a lot higher than, than anticipated, you just move on from them. Yeah, and I think a guy like Romine, you know, it's funny because he's been dead to right so many times, right? And you've seen that he just keeps coming back. Um, which is why a guy like him, I think they want to retain him when, when 
you look at how much experience he has with the pitching staff, even if you're not impressed with his production, I think that's something that a new manager will value. I think that's something the front office values. But other guys I can see being let go, but that's still a decent amount of players there that mean a lot to your success and, and have meant a lot to your success last year. Now, speaking of arbitration, uh, Joe, can you just explain to the listeners the whole process of what arbitration is? Because I had a listener ask me the question, and I could have completely answered the question wrong. So I, I, I thought arbitration was something where a player, I guess from his end, he, he feels that he should make this amount of money, and the club says that they should make a certain amount of money. Now, how is it decided? Does the judge decide what the player makes? What's that whole process? It's basically that um, before you can hit free agency, before you have X amount of uh, um, MLB experience that you can declare yourself a free, you can declare free agency, um, you go through arbitration years. So uh, it depends on the player, but there's usually two or three years of arbitration. And player X, so say Didi Gregorius, he said, oh, listen, I have a great year. I think I deserve um, $9 million. Then... The Yankees will come back and say, no, you, you know, because of this, this, and this, you actually only deserve $4 million. And these guys are making peanuts to begin with. So um, then they go to court and they, they have an independent arbitrator decide how much um, each player is worth. Um, and sometimes guys won't sign the contracts out of protest and they'll play for, you know, the minimum or whatever they were making. But that's usually, that's basically how it works in a nutshell. Um, the arbitrator will decide how much a player is worth. Usually, usually the rulings go in favor of the owners. Sometimes uh, they'll come out cleaner. The players will come out cleaner. And uh, a lot of times, too, the, before you can reach arbitration hearings, um, the team and the player will work out a deal so they don't have to go through that entire process. So that's basically arbitration in a nutshell. Well, I guess that's why they get ugly because, you know, if a player is saying, well, like Didi, Didi had a really good season. So Didi could come in and say, hey, man, I think I'm worth $9 million. And the Yankees could be like, well, wait a minute. We think you're worth $2 million. And Didi could turn around and be like, what? You guys literally think I'm worth $2 million? You know what I'm yeah, saying? That's, <laughs> that's well, exactly what that something was... else. The, um, the, one of the other reasons a team will, will kind of come in lower is when you go to file for arbitration the following season, you start from your current contract. You yep. can't go down. So yep. the reason the Yankees fought Dylan Batances is because they give him three and a half million this past season. And now this year you start at five. You know, you're going to start at three and a half and then you're going to say, well, I'm going to give him a two million dollar raise. He'll make five and a half. If Dylan won last year and he made five million last year, this year he'd probably put in a number at about eight. And, yeah. and, and over the course of the process, the team loses more money. And, you know, what's unfair about the whole thing, too, is, you know, you take a guy like Dylan Batances, who, you know, this year was an up and down year. But if he obviously means a lot to a team, a team is going to want to keep him happy. And, and um, what a team says about you in arbitration and how much they value you during the process often says a lot to other younger players um, about what the team is about. Right. So. You don't want to go into an arbitration hearing and look what Randy Levine said about Dylan Batances earlier in this year where he completely tore him down. And I understand that maybe he wasn't worth it. They didn't believe that he was worth the money that Dylan was asking for. But um, that kind of stuff, you know, Levine that's saying, you know, what does that send to other players uh, who are free agents or who are entering arbitration and 
one day will be free agents. Why would they want to deal with you again um, after the things that you say or the things that you do in an arbitration hearing? So it's a really complicated process. It, it, it gets ugly a lot of times, which is why you're starting to see more and more teams settle with players before arbitration hearings, and I think that's for the best. Now, looking at the Yankees' uh, upcoming season and their roster, so currently Castro is out of the mix. So the second base slot is open. Um, I'm hearing Torres, Glaber Torres, the Yankees' minor league stud. Um, you know, I'm hearing that they may slot him in to the second base uh, position, and then they're going to use the outfielders as a rotation for the DH spot. Now, with Aaron Boone, Joe, you know, Javadi, I always felt that Javadi was kind of like, you know, even if a, a, a stud in the minors might have been ready, Javadi kind of always kept him down. Do you think of a like Torres and and Chance? I forgot the Chance Adams. That's the young man's name. The pitcher. Yeah. Do you think if those guys are ready, that Aaron Boone is the type of coach that'll be like, okay, come on up and let's you know let's do what we do? Or do you think he's still going to be like, well, no, go back down in the minors and you know play another year down there? How do you think the you know that the mentality and with Aaron Boone might be different? I, I was at Aaron Boone's introductory press conference this weekend, and after the formal showing, um, we had a more informal press conference. And one thing that Boone preached over and over again were relationships. And I think he understands he's in a position where the young players are very important and the relationship with young players are very important. And the feeling that you kind of got this past season was, um, and I think part of the reason he got the job was because Joe Girardi was stressing um, a lot, you know, he stresses these players out a lot, and you can tell he picks favorites. A guy like Tyler Wade, who he said in the media he needs to hit more, or a guy like Gary Sanchez, who he said in the media that he needs to improve defensively. That's just not things that um, managers that keep their jobs do. Um, that's just the bottom line. So I think Boone is the type of guy that, that will look at what he has on paper. You can tell he's a very, very intelligent baseball mind. Um, just from what he says, yeah, I think managing experience tends to be a little overrated anyway. Um, I think he's going to see these players. Cashman's going to give him players. Uh, a guy like Gleyber Torres, you're not going to see him start the season at second base. I think the Yankees are going to wait uh, a couple weeks to start his clock a little later. But you probably see Tyler Wade start the season at second, if I had to guess. Um, and, and Torres will slot in there later. But talking with Boone, uh, he stressed that relationships are very important. He's, he's actually singled out Gary Sanchez as one of the players that he feels uh, he has to connect with as a manager. And he also said that he reached out to pretty much the entire team via text message. And he's trying to get the ball rolling on meeting these guys and getting to learn these guys. So I think he understands that he's a young manager with a young team and cultivating relationships and keeping guys even keeled over the course of the season is really important. So to answer your question, yeah, I think he's the type of player that or type of manager that will give young, young guys a shot. Uh, and I think that's really important on a team that's just loaded with young guys. Hey, Joe, um, speaking of Aaron Boone and how he might view some of the young players, any any word on uh, potential third base coach, bench coach? Uh, you know, I know that Larry Rothschild is staying on uh, as a pitching coach. I'm I'm not sure if I've heard Tony Pena has, has made a decision to come back or, or uh, leave the team. I know they said it's his call. Uh, any any word on what Boone is uh, looking at? Uh, I think the last that I read was Josh Bard. Um, this is courtesy of Andrew Marchand of ESPN.com. Um, uh, it looks like Josh Bard, former major league catcher, is probably going to slide into the bench coach role. 
He's a guy that's heralded for his, you know, his baseball IQ. That's something you're going to hear a lot. As far as the other slots go, I think you're going to see a lot of that come down early this week. There hasn't been a lot out there yet. Boone said in his press conference that he's not exactly looking for major league experience. He doesn't think that that should be a prerequisite on his coaching staff. And and you kind of respect and, and admire him for that because he's very honest. He's not saying uh, certain guys should get jobs just because they've been around for a long time. Because at the end of the day, that's how you get retreads. That's how you get a lot of uh, coaches that you know have been in, in situations where they haven't won, but because they keep getting second, third, fourth chances uh, for some reason, that, that's how you get retreads and you get complacency and you don't really get a new message in there. He said, oh, I, he, I completely agree. And he says, uh, Boone also said that he wants smart and he wants confidence sitting next to him. Um, not exactly uh, experienced. So, yeah, I think you're going to see some first-time coaches there. I think Pena would be a huge boost to the staff, but if he doesn't want to come back, he can't really force him. But uh, as far as bench coach goes, it looks like it's going to be Josh Barton unless somebody else blows him out of the water. Now I know we mentioned the importance of Pena coming back, and, you know, we kind of thought that Pena might have been sliding into the bench coach. So apparently with Bard being sliding into the bench coach, I mean, that would – pretty much uh, Lee Pena would be uh, returning as a first base coach, if if anything. So, I mean, you know, does that lessen the chances of him coming back? Do you think Pena might have felt slighted that, you know, he wasn't given an opportunity to be a bench coach and might not be okay with doing a first base coach job? Yeah, Pena's been everywhere in this organization, right? I mean, he's been he, – he's such an important voice to the young players. I just – I, I – I understand that experience, and I just said experience, I don't think is everything, but when you have, um, let's not forget Tony Pena's, Tony Pena's connection to the uh, Hispanic players on the team and the Latin players on the team, uh, I don't think that can be understated. And he, the, the players love him. Um, he's a big clubhouse presence. Uh, I, I think he's important to stay. It's important that he stays to see this through. But at the same time, like I just said, um, sometimes retreads in baseball aren't the best thing. And Payne is a guy that's 60 years old now. He's managed before a decade ago now. So I don't see him really going anywhere else and lighting anything else up um, unless somebody comes to him with, with a big-time opportunity. But uh, it's important that he comes back. I think if the team understands, it's important that he comes back. And you'll probably see him back as the first base coach next year. But it, it, it remains to be seen with some of these moves that the Yankees are making. Been a little bit outside the box. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's gone. That brings us to a conclusion of the best of 2017 of the Lloyd A. Thompson and Mad Mike Sports Talk Show. I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for making 2017 magical and special for us. Hopefully we can continue this going on in 2018. Again, want to thank you guys for the support. I want to thank the Mad Mike. I want to thank all our special guests. And I want to thank our producer, A.O. Omar Baker. So guys, with that being said, next week we're going to have an all-new show of 2018. Starting things off the right way, we'll talk about the Giants. We'll talk about the Yankees and spring training approaches. We'll talk about the Knicks and we'll get back on our grind in seven days guys again happy new year much love blessings prosperity and health to all of you to all of your families to all of your loved ones and with that being said see you in seven days Ayo! let's roll baby yes sir Alright, once again, that was a phenomenal 2017, as you can tell from all the clips that we just went through. Looking forward to 2018. Happy New Year to y'all. 
This is AO signing off from the Lloyd A. Thompson, the Mad Mike Show, and we'll catch y'all next week. Make sure you check out the brand new episode, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, LloydAThompson.com. Peace.